Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced, The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance. Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land and welcome to Juance, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. I'm Dan Pfefferman. And together we are super excited for another great episode of the show. Before we get going, I'd like to give a shout out to our audience. Thanks for tuning in. For those of you listening on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts and all the other podcast platforms, know that usually there's a live video version of the podcast, which you can check out weekly. It's available on our Facebook page. Facebook.com slash Juance Podcast. Check it out when we record or watch all our episodes on our YouTube channel, Juance Podcast, as well as our website. You guessed it, www.juance.com. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram. We are at Juance on Twitter, where we are at Juance Podcast, so you don't miss any updates and all the cool infographics and promos that Benny's putting together. And as always, make sure to subscribe on Juance. We are on Spotify, Apple, podcast stitcher and all of the major podcast platforms and of course we'd love it if you give us a five-star review it really makes a difference how you doing man it's uh it's a strange day here in israel it's a strange day here in israel it is um kind of always sneaks up on us and we're sitting here with our new friend john daly how you doing man I'm doing well bro. we are in the city of ashkelon israel where john lives i embarrassingly have never been here before it is something you should be embarrassed about. I'm slightly embarrassed by How it. How long have you lived in Israel? On and off over 20 years. Yeah, man. I don't even know how that's possible. We're a small country. I'm with Benny on this one. Dude, it's like, it's so far, it, there's nothing here. No offense. Dude, that's not, that's not, <laughs> you just don't know. <laughs> I, it's, it's not a place, it, okay, for those of you who don't know, look up on a map where Ashkelon is. It's on, you know, if you go down the coastline, it's right before you hit Gaza, and I've just never had a reason to be here. You also don't drive through Ashkelon to get anywhere. If you're going down south, you cut more inland and you go around Gaza, right? So it's not like I'm, uh, I've never been to Gaza. I've done plenty of guard duty on the Gaza border, but I've never been in Gaza. And um, I just never had a reason to come here until today. Uh, so I'll let, I'll let John do a quick a plug for Ashkelon. But I will say that I come here often uh, with tour groups. There's an excellent shuk here, an excellent market. Uh, one, one of the best in Israel, in my opinion. Uh, and also, uh, it'll be in the news a lot uh, coming into the next week because one of the Israel Prize winners, uh, the 102-year-old health food... Essentially, there's a guy who's 102 years old. He works in the Ashkelon market. He's, he came here from Yemen. His spice name... Spice dealer. Spice dealer. Spice dealer, exactly. Yeah, spice he, dealer. But, but when we say spice dealer, it's not like you're going to him to get like some paprika for your salad or something like that. It's, it's you're, you're, you're going to him to get... Uh, you know, you have aches and pains in your arm or, or something that's healing, bothering you. Healing, healing traditional spices and herbs and things like so that. So he's winning the Israel Prize. Very um, cool. In addition to that, at beautiful beaches here in Ashkelon. I've, I've heard that, yeah. I've heard that. Uh, um, so, yeah, I just haven't, haven't had a chance to be here. But, but it's a strange day here in Israel. Um, tonight, we are recording this on Wednesday morning, and Wednesday night begins Israeli Holocaust Memorial Day, which, unlike... 
you know, yes, there's International Holocaust Memorial Day and there's great ceremonies, but here in Israel, just like every national holiday, it is felt. It is felt in every fiber of this country. And it's, uh, you know, I was telling John in the, in the car on the way over here, um, it, it, you can't escape it. The radio, the, the siren that we're going to hear in the morning where the country literally stops and stands at attention. Every single new uh, TV channel has specials. The songs switch to slow and sad. Those Holocaust survivors who are left are being interviewed, you know, on the radio all week and especially today and tomorrow. So it, it's inescapable here. Um, and, and it's... It's tough and it's serious, and so it kind of dampens the whole mood, uh, rightfully so, uh, of of the day and of this weekend, um, and just in general. I think it's a crazy two week period in Israel. If 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 you've never been to Israel, this is a very intense two week period where we have Holocaust Day, which is a national holiday celebrated, celebrated, commemorated throughout, and then next week we go into the Memorial Day for fallen soldiers and for victims of terrorism. And then literally you go straight from that into the bittersweet uh, celebration of Independence Day. It's the only way to, uh, to actually understand how you earned Independence Day was to go from Memorial Day to Independence Day. Mm. Then you understand the price that was paid versus having a multi-month separation between yeah. the two. This one you're like, okay, yeah, my friend that fell, this is why. That's why we have a country. Yeah. So, so that, that's the kind of period we're in here. And, and you know, usually... We're a little more, you know, joking and, and kind of uh, chipper on the show. Today might not be such such a day. Uh, I, I will just say to, to illustrate a point when you when you say that everybody knows about it here and it's inescapable. We we're also including children in a way because I'll, I'll give you an example. We're in southern Israel right now. I also live uh, kind of in the northern part of southern Israel, so we're often under the unfortunate, uh, you know, the, the zone of influence of Hamas rockets when mm. when they come in. So. Uh, my, my children, my daughter who is six years old and my son who is four, they've learned that there are two types of sirens. There's the siren for rockets and there's the siren that comes on on, on Yom HaShoah, on Holocaust Remembrance Day and on Yom HaZikaron, on Memorial Day because, of course, the, the, the siren that comes on for, for this day is a uh, single tone and the siren for an actual attack is a rising and falling tone. So you have to explain to them what that means and it's, a, it's an educational opportunity to explain to your children what's going on and why are people stopping and what does it mean wow. and, and you have to get yeah. into it with them especially when your child is old enough to start asking questions which mine are and, and uh, you know you can't, you can't avoid it. Um, so I know that there are other countries, United States amongst them where, where oftentimes people would not get into this sort of subject matter with such, such young children and in here in Israel you have no choice. You have to find it's ways mandatory. to, Correct. It's to mandatory. get into it. Yeah. So with that with that, we have an interesting episode today. <laughs> we we try to have interesting episodes every week. Um, some are lighter than others, but we have an interesting episode today with, with John Daly, who we will uh, get into uh, your very interesting, crazy life story, true life story, as uh, a Jewish man who was forcibly recruited by the neo-Nazis in America. Did I say that right? Better than some things I've had put out were the Jewish neo-Nazi. Like, the Jewish neo-Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's the Jewish neo-Nazi. There, there were, maybe we can get into this later, there were partially Jewish Nazis in Nazi Germany who, yes. were, who it was known that they had some Jewish background. About it, Hitler's Jewish soldiers. Hitler's Jewish soldiers, exactly. I think there, there was a name for it in German, I can't remember, but they were like called quarter something or whatever. Um, but before we get into that, 
before we get into that. Uh, so before we get into that, let, listen, check it out. Uh, as you know, Juanced is a listener-supported podcast. We rely on the generous support of listeners such as yourself to make sure that we can continue to keep the party going and bring in terrific guests. Uh, so if you are listening in one of the, I think it's what, 109 countries? Yeah, we're, we're up to 109 countries. We welcome uh, recently listeners from Mongolia, from Yemen, from Oman. Thank you. We now have the entire Middle East. We're very proud of that. Um, all across Africa, Asia, through literally the whole world, 109 countries, we have, uh, we have people listening to us. So interesting statistic for people out there about the listenership. Uh, our number one country for listeners is the United States. Our number two is quite, uh, quite uh, obviously Israel. Uh, John, do you have any idea what the number three country might be for Jewans listeners? Keep in mind, this is a Jewish and Israel-centered English language podcast. Iran. Nope. Uh, but close by geographically and okay. uh, in, in the starting letter is India. Our third largest listenership is, is uh, Indians uh, from all over India. And uh, if you are an Indian listener who wants to support you, please, <laughs> please reach out to us. Send us some rupees. <laughs> we would love to, in, be, we, we'd love to understand more uh, how you got to the show and what's just, going on. Just in that. general, if you, if you, first of all, any of our listeners, we'd love to hear from you. Send us a shout out, email, uh, Facebook message, Twitter message, uh, how you got to the show what you think of it, if you want to suggest topics or things that interest you. And especially we'd love to hear from you if you're from one of these, uh, not the U.S., not Israel, not Canada. Send us a message. Who are you? How, how are you getting connected to the show and what you think of it? Um, and, uh, and if you'd like to support this show, again, yes. uh, make, make, you can make a one-time donation on our PayPal account or an ongoing contribution on our Patreon for information about how to do that and for more information about us, again, check us out on juents.com. Yeah, and if you are an organization or a company that would like to sponsor an episode, you are welcome to do that. Uh, we will give you a shout out on the show and on all of our social media as a sponsor. Uh, promote your business, promote your organization. And if you'd like to host us for a dedicated live event where we will host a panel session, whether you suggest a guest or we bring our guests from our wide network of friends and connections, uh, again, reach out to us on www.juanced.com for more information. All right. Sir. Yes, sir. I don't even know how to tackle the beginning of this podcast. So, so you're going to drop it on me? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to completely and totally put it on you. I defer. <laughs> Dan. <laughs> as always. So as I mentioned, we have with us uh, John Daly, and we were introduced by our uh, close mutual friend, Yael Maoz, Dr. Yael Maoz or when you met her, Tiffany, um, in, in Florida. Um, so thank you, uh, Yael, for, for making this introduction. Um, and you've, you've, got a, you've got an interesting life story. We, we teased it a little bit at the beginning. True. So where are you from? <laughs> where am I from? Wow, that's a broad, broad. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Ocala, Florida, which is north central Florida. North Central Florida, so that's not right. like Miami Beach. That's no, 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 no. It's about five, six hours north from Miami Beach. Well, what kind of places it describe describe it for us? Give us a take us there. It's a very it, okay. We're going back several years. I've been sure, in, sure. as we mentioned. I've been in Israel a couple of decades. Um, it's uh, it was a country town, very small. I think now it's blossomed to hundred something. 100, 150,000 people, something like that. It's a decent-sized city nowadays. But when I lived there, it was relatively small. Re okay, relatively small, kind of countryside, you'd say, maybe, you know, white, diverse, white America. White. It was one of the best places in America to, um, to raise racehorses. Racehorses? Right. Okay. So I, there are a lot of horse farms. I did not know that Florida 
had anything to do with racehorses. Marion, oh, yeah, man. Marion County. Marion County. Interesting. In Marion County. Interesting. Tell, maybe tell us a little bit about your background, your parents, and, and kind of well, before we get into the, the main story that we teased, you know, just kind of, what was your upbringing like? Um, my upbringing. My parents moved around a lot. By the time I graduated from high school, I'd been to 13 different schools. Um, so a lot of the moving around was basically due to employment and things of that nature. And I apologize for the listeners for me moving away from the microphone. That's just my preference, the way I like to sit. And uh, for getting them on a podcast and that y'all are expecting to hear what I have to say. <laughs> um, and since Dan laid it off, is it basically, hey, if this, is, if this show is horrible, it's on John. It's going to be interesting, but... Uh, <laughs> no, it's on me. Not at all. <laughs> well, blame it on Benny. That's cool. Totally fine. Um, so the city itself, my, with my background, it was in Tampa, Florida, where my dad was from, um, before he... Wow, it depends how many generations y'all want to go back. Well, I mean, you got some history in the States, don't you? Uh, there's a bit, yeah. My family was basically at America when um, Jamestown. When they landed, they were like, hey, welcome. Have a coffee. Have a donut. Wow. So my wow. mom's side of the family has been in America for a long, long time. Jamestown is 1600s, if I'm not mistaken. I do believe you're correct on the math, yeah. Wow. Yeah, her family's been around for a while. English. Um, yes. English. Uh, some Hungarian. It, it depends. There are different spots all over Europe that her family's come together with. Um, all very involved with American history, every aspect of American history, every war that was fought in the United States, a member of my family was probably uh, a participant of. Unbelievable. Uh, Aide-de-camp to General Washington. Really? He was my great, great, great uncle, Tench Tillman. He gave the eulogy at his, uh, when he passed. Mm-hmm. So your, fa- your family finds uh, it's, it's... On your mom's side, right? On your, your mom's side. On your mom's side goes back literally through all of American history. Essentially, yes. Wow. And they find their way throughout throughout the, the centuries from Virginia to... Primarily in that region. My mom married my dad, who was from uh, New York. They met, I believe, in New York is where they met. When they married, they lived in different states, South Carolina, Georgia, but ultimately settled down in uh, Tampa, Florida, which okay. is where my dad's family had moved to in uh, 1957. And, and your dad uh, comes from a Jewish family? Mixed. Mixed. My grandfather was Irish, Catholic. Mm. My grandmother, Jewish who was raised Catholic. Mm. My great-great-grandmother did not want her children to understand to suffer through the horrors of anti-Semitism, so she raised them as little Catholics. Hmm. My great-uncle, my grandmother's brother, became a priest. Really? Mm-hmm. And in your home growing up, was it, were, you, were you raised, in a, would you call it a Jewish home, or was it just that religion wasn't a part of... Very, very, very assimilated. It was known that this is, you know, this is your identity, this is who you are, but um, very assimilated. There are some members of the family that are extremely anti-Semitic, and if I walk up to them and say, hey, listen, you can make Ali Adamar if you wanted to, uh, it, would be, it would destroy their little worlds. Wow. But of your own family, members of your family, who are, tech, family. who are halakhically Jewish? Correct. Who are anti-Semitic? Correct. Surprise, your kids are too. Yeah, right? Is this, uh, how, first irony. Off, how many, yes. in Ocala during those days, how many other Jewish families were there? Most of the Jewish services we went to were in Tampa, Florida with Rabbi Theodore Brode, um, a blessed memory. He was a great guy. He was my parents' personal rabbi. He was who they loved, um, and who did my bar mitzvah. So, so you did have some, you know, Jewish upbringing in that sense. Some, yes. Yeah. Uh, growing up, my parents were very big into punishment was go read the Bible, go read Deuteronomy. <laughs> and that, that would literally be punishment. <laughs> read part of the Tanakh, read part of the Torah. That was literally welcome to punishment. Um, wow. And then when you'd quote it back to them, they weren't thrilled. 
they didn't have access to somebody to teach us Gemara and things of that nature. Yeah. They didn't know it themselves. Right. Um, so my parents did what they could to put a little bit into us. And when it came to our mitz- bar mitzvah, yeah, it was definite. In Tampa? Yes, it was in Tampa. Okay. And, uh, and I understood your mom converted at, at one point, correctly? They didn't have the proper paperwork all mm. the way through to prove that she was Jewish all the way through. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, were there other Jewish families around? Was there In any? Ocala? Yeah. There were, but I was more a kid. So the holidays, the high holidays, we would drive down to Tampa to be mm. with the rabbi. It wasn't like I could say, hey, mom, dad, I'm 12. Give me the car. Sure. I want to go uh, meet people. Sure. Um, and the local shul was uh, reform, and I guess they didn't really click with it. Mm. So they preferred to make the drive to the man that they knew and that they got in along Tampa. with. Yes, sir. In Tampa. What kind of uh, synagogue was it in Tampa? It was in the rabbi's house. He retired, and he knew that um, he knew that there were a lot of people that would simply stop going to services if he wasn't doing something. So he maintained all services in his home, uh, be it Shabbat, be it Chagim. Pretty much everything was there. I, I definitely uh, know some of those kind of scenarios from smaller towns with smaller Jewish populations. Uh, my mom became a rabbi later in life, basically in a community that didn't have anyone was falling apart. And they, she drives an hour to get to this community and has become the rabbi and has kind of revived it. So, uh, you know, a lot of people are familiar with New York Jewish life or Chicago or L.A. Jewish life in the States and, and uh, or bigger, bigger communities. We're, we're, by the way, I should mention thank you to the uh, speaking of bigger communities. We are in the Ashkelon Baltimore Jewish Agency Partnership Building. Uh, which they let us use to record this podcast today here in Ashkelon. So thank, thank you to them. And, and speaking of larger communities like Baltimore, which, which is one such community. But when you grow up in a smaller community, I grew up in a place with 2,000 Jews. Uh, again, town of about 100,000, like, like Ocala, sounds like. And um, yeah, there's, there's communities, but there's not a whole lot going on. You all have a nicer university, though. That, that is true. <laughs> nice Catholic university. Um, although very nice to the Jews, I got, I got to say. There's a famous story. Uh, Do you know this? There's a famous story. My grandpa, my grandpa went to Notre Dame in the 30s, in the early 30s. And at the time, it was less an elite university and locals could go to the university. And Newt Rockne, does that name ring a bell to you? Vaguely, yeah. Newt Rockne was one of the people, I guess you could say, who invented American football or really brought it to prominence. And... um, the Ku Klux Klan, which was founded in Indiana, wanted to march in South Bend. And Newt Rockney brought out the football team, and they basically beat them up in the streets and kicked them out of South Bend. So this is the, fam- the famous story of Newt Rockney and, and uh, the fighting Irish, you know, standing up to the Ku Klux Klan back in the 1930s in South Bend. Um, those are the kind of stories you hear from, from back then. You never heard that? I never heard that. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a great, a cool story. great piece of uh, South Bend lore. So you're growing up, and take us, take us through your, at least this part of your early life story. Well, we should say, there's a, a documentary made about you. There are several. The there most are several. recent is Escape from a Mateen, which yes. was recently released for, for the North American market on Amazon. And basically every streaming platform, except for Netflix, I think, but most of them you can find it on. So we watched, we watched it, and, and it's intense, and we recommend um, if people want to get more of the story or a different angle on the story, they're welcome to... Uh, to, to rent it or buy it and download it. It, it, it. I would just say, like, it's intense in that you, you, you're, the man sitting before us has so many different facets to his life story that you aren't necessarily uh, expecting to hear about when the movie begins. And it sort of unfolds in this cascading s- series of things, which, you're, like, each one of them is just like a holy shit moment. Like, 
Like, yeah. What? We, no we, way. No. We, we might drop yeah. some uh, shit bombs and f bombs on this show. When, Please and, write a review to that effect. And I I will it, yeah. because it's seriously incredible. And you started off, and it's it's like, all right, is this going to be? Another Holocaust movie? No. Is this going to be a documentary about some guy that uh, uh, you know found his way into a white supremacist movement? Yes, but no. And then is it going to be about crime? Yeah. And then it's like all of the above. And I, I didn't know how to process it afterwards. We're, we're like, st- I can't believe I'm going to meet this guy. We're going to process it with you because here. there's so many different questions. And I think that that kind of leads us to 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 the next place, which is like you're you're often billed and 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 this isn't how you like to be referred to, but people, the way people are, uh, will pin somebody to an event and they're like, this is the Jewish neo-Nazi guy. It draws a crowd. It draws a crowd. Yeah. Which leads to the question of, you're in Ocala, Florida, and you get into you know, white supremacist movement, which is, uh, on, on the face of things, not necessarily uh, obvious. Yeah, there's a twist for, in the story, right? For a, a boy that grows up in Jewish and, hasn't, and having a bar mitzvah, because I also grew up Jewish and had a bar mitzvah, and so did Dan, and, and that wasn't our trajectory. Uh, and, and, and you seem to you know, be from a place where, like you said, there are Jews who hate Jews. Uh, and and it, it's interesting in and of itself. It's anthropologically interesting, definitely. Um, but how does that happen? How do you go from, from you know... We live in Israel, man. We all know that there are Jews that hate Jews. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I might be one of them <laughs> sometimes. <Yeah. laughs> spend, spend uh, you know, get on an airplane with, with certain people and, and you're, you know, go, go to a vacation spot with enough Israelis and you're going to, even if you're Jewish, you're going to come out a little bit anti-Semitic. My apologies. Yeah, you might want to not want to read the comment section for a few days after. <laughs> all right. <laughs> No, I, but I like can, legit, I like uh, we look. There, there's like a common narrative which you hear in, in in many places in the world and in the states, definitely, which is that you know people that are growing up that don't have necessarily a strong base are brought into you know different movements uh, because they find a sense of community and they find a sense of people that are there that have their interests and that for the first time are you know really looking out for them and and provide not only a sense of family, but a sense of protection from all kinds of perceived dangers exactly. that are in the world. So that's Acceptance. 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 You're one of us now. You were on the fringe, you're now one of us. And that's something that means a great deal so, to people that are on the edge. So where did you meet these people? How did you first get involved in any sort of white supremacist movement? Before I get in the white supremacist movement, I was in an anti-racist group. And that's the part that tends to get skipped over because that's the, le- the least interesting part. I went to a birthday party with one of my friends, and he introduced me to some friends of his. And as I'm sitting around with these guys, and they're talking, they said they were skinheads. I was like, all right, man, listen, I'm sure that's cool and all, but I'm Jewish. I can't hang out with y'all. And one of the guys lifted up his shirt, and there was a white and black hand cracking a SWAT skin, too. And he said, oh, no, no, we're not those type of skinheads. We're anti-racist skinheads. What's an anti-racist skinhead? Wait, wait, take a, take a step further back. What's a skinhead? A skinhead is somebody, think of extreme blue-collar nationalist. It's, it's really the best export that Britain's ever made. Not the best. It's the most popular <laughs> export because it's in every single country on the planet. There are skinheads everywhere, just about. Why do they call themselves skinheads? Uh, it was against the hippie movement. Hippies had long hair, so we'll shave our heads. Uh-huh. So the skinhead movement starts as a counter-movement to the hippies. It started off, they listened to ska music, which is like reggae music. So it was more just like blacks and whites hanging out together. The, some of the major, first major skinhead bands had black singers. But today when you hear the word skinhead, the immediate knee-jerk reaction is to think of like... Neo-Nazis. Neo-Nazis. White supremacists. All right. 
And that's where I, until you just said what you said about the hippie thing, I thought it was like these people shave their head because it's like a Nazi thing. I had because no, they want to murder people. Yeah, I have no. They don't want to kill people on their shave head now. It's weird, but that's like where you, where, where you go. So there, there are non, there are anti-racist skinheads. There were gay skins when I was involved. There were sharps, skinheads against racial prejudice, which are definitely, definitely, definitely. There is vi- all skinhead groups are violent. Don't be confused. All skinhead groups are violent. Don't approach a group of skinheads on the street and be like. Are you the nice skinheads? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Your friendly neighborhood skinheads. Public okay. service announcement number one of the show. Exactly. <laughs> Take note, people. Exactly. Um, in the States right now, is Antifa a skinhead sort of a thing? I think Antifa is an entirely different movement. It's an entirely different group. Because I don't think there's anyone in that group that would like to refer to themselves as a skinhead because of the same connotation that you mentioned, because of the, uh, the racism factor. Okay. And why is one more famous than the other? The example that I always give, if you plant a rose garden, is it to make the news? No. You have to have a really, really good, cool rose garden. If I show up and hit you with the, with the shovel and kill the guy that did the rose garden, who's going to make the press? Yeah, exactly. There you have it. Then the rose garden makes the news. So, so you get recruited to a skinhead group that is an anti-racist they were, just, they were just cool guys to hang out with. Okay. And they just hang out with. Like, that's what skinheads so what, are what hanging out. How old are you at this point? At this point, I was 15. It was before my 16th birthday. 15. And, and what, you know, other than these are cool guys, was there something in your life that, you know, brought you to these people or made you look for some kind of group or some kind of connection to people? I went to a high school where I was definitely a nerd. Um, and so, yeah, just having other guys to hang out with where I felt like I was accepted, where I felt like I was protected after a fashion. Um, Were you bullied? Ask any nerd. <laughs> I was kind of a big nerd, so I was never bullied. <laughs> there were moments. Okay, so, so you start hanging out with these guys, and, and what do you do? What do you guys do? The biggest thing was drink and camaraderie. Just get out together, and they were always looking for the next place they could get alcohol from or their cigarettes from. Um, were they looking to be violent? Were they looking to fight? Or, was that part of it? That was more the racist skinheads. These guys would react to if something if violence came their way, they would definitely react. Um, so you're hanging out. You're 15. You're hanging out with these guys who are one type of skinhead and you're saying there are other types of skinheads around the country is this still a thing by the way other types of skinheads yeah i mean is this definitely. still a thing in the u.s yeah globally yeah globally definitely who are not racist there are some groups that definitely that feel like you cannot be a skinhead and call yourself racist so maybe then we should ask the opposite how does skinhead how do, how do they become racist skinheads yeah what, what is it where, where does i guess maybe the racists appropriated it what what what's the story here Basically, that racist appropriated it. It's easy to look for youth on the shulaim, on the fringe, mm-hmm. and give them a place to belong. Mm. I was driving through one city with a manager, director of Halal that had invited me to speak to the school. Um, and as we were driving, they, that was one of the questions. How do they recruit? And I said, stop at any pub. Let me walk in. Let's just be nice to them. Look for the person leading on the wall and be nice to them. And even in their chat platforms, it's one of the things they say. Look for the person and be nice. That is our greatest weapon, is being nice. Our greatest recruiting tool is just being nice. And by going to the person that doesn't have somewhere to belong to and saying, okay, be with us now, and look at all of the crazies that have done something on their behalf, in the name of white supremacy, if you will. They were all people that were on the fringe, and somebody took them and brought them in and weaponized them. Sounds like, is that how a lot of extremism works? Or not extremism, just... You want to recruit someone, find the people who don't belong somewhere and, and give them a home. I would think so, yeah. 
So you, you're a high school kid. You feel a little out of place. And you make friends with these guys who are anti-racist skinheads. Do you feel like you're a skinhead then? Or are you just hanging out with these guys? I had long hair at the time, which drove my dad nuts. My dad wanted us to look like the 1950s kids with like uh, the khakis and the DA, the, the DA haircut, which is a duck's ass in the back. That's what it was called. Um, but he could not understand why we wanted to be different. And so, of course, four sons, we all rebelled against our father. So each one mm-hmm. of us was going in a different direction. Um, well, what did some of your other brothers do? Most, a lot of them went towards skating. I didn't have the coordination and I didn't like falling down. I can, so, I, I can sympathize with that. I didn't see the point <laughs> of standing on a board with wheels. It's like, that just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So no thanks, I'll pass. So they went to skating. You still in touch with your brothers, by the way? Yes. Yeah, they live all in the States, I'm assuming? Yes. Are any of them identifying as Jewish or living Jewish lives these days? Um, one definitely is. The other two, more or less. Interesting. Not to the same extent we in Israel would consider it. Right. All right. right. So what happened that brought you on a trajectory to be in the sphere of the racist skinheads? Two of my friends, one of which was the original guy that I met with a black and white hand cracking the swastika in two. They went to Orlando. And in Orlando, Florida, which Disney World, of course, everyone's heard about the King Rat, um, Mickey Mouse. So down there in Orlando, they went to uh, this one club. And at this club, they were approached by a group of neo-Nazi skins. And racist skins don't ask questions. They're not looking for answers. They're providing them. Mm. So when they approach you and say, okay, come with us, come hang out with us, what are you going to say? No. What happens if you say no? Enjoy the beating. They'll literally come up to you, and if you don't want to go hang out with them, they'll just start beating you. Maybe not immediately at that moment, but the whole point, the whole skinhead movement is a violent movement. Mm. And they're very, very, very quick, the violence. So yes, if a group of skinheads approach you, Yes, there's a very good chance that there's going to be violence. Maybe but not the, in the club, but um, outside. They'll wait for you in the parking lot or something. Yeah, let me, let, I've done that, yeah. Are they, it's a strange question, but are they, is their violence coordinated? Is it, is, it, is it tactical or is it just brunt rage? Like, do they learn fighting tactics and techniques and do they train? And Is there a purpose to the fighting? Is it like we need to instigate a fight here for this purpose or is, or is it just yeah or is it just like straight up street brawl type style fighting now i know they're more into training back in my day it was just let's throw down throw down and if you got access to a weapon bring it we had a lot of rednecks in our town so it wasn't uncommon for where we hung out for like a carload of rednecks or long hairs to get out and start something with us and we would have to defend ourselves from them okay is this in the this is in ocala no but in, in the the pre White supremacist? Correct. So you're part of this group. How many, how many of you are there? About 10 of us, I guess. 10 of us. And so you'd be getting in fights regularly? That was... Not regularly. Baruch Hashem, thank God, it was always on the nights that I wasn't there. <laughs> Just like one of the nights when one of my buddies got stabbed, another, another night where uh, teeth were rearranged with rebar. Um, and none of those nights I was there, which is phenomenal, because we- I hung out with these guys almost every night of the week. But as a student... I wasn't going to be there every single time. Usually weekends and such is when I would... Uh, were, were they also high school kids or were they older or were they dropouts or what? I was the only one in school. You were the only one in school? Only one in school. Were, were you ever much of a fighter? Like, did you, did you have that inclination? Have What's that? Do you have brothers? I do not. I've got three. Yes. We scrapped. We weren't, I mean, not fighters per se because no parent wants their kids to be out in the front yard boxing. Sure. But uh, yeah, there were moments. Yeah. So, so, you, um, so your friends go to Orlando... And they are approached, and you don't say no when you're approached by 
white supremacist. Uh, yes, my friends were approached by these guys, and they spent a few days with them. And one was hiding this tattoo the entire time because he knew if they saw it, he knew what they would do to him. And they said, okay, we want the names and addresses of your friends in Ocala. Because how do you but they knew who you were? They didn't know who I was, but they knew that they had friends in Ocala. And since these guys were from my city, they knew where I lived because we hung out together. We'd been in places. We'd done, mm-hmm. things, uh, done things together. Um, and they obviously had a car because they were in Orlando. So somehow they'd made it down there. So one day there's a knock on my door and there are three neo-Nazi skinheads standing outside. Inside the house, my family's getting ready to go to a wedding. So I've got my mom, dad, my three brothers all getting ready to leave. And I'm thinking, here, these Nazis are here for me. So what do I do? Let them in the house where they can see the Judaica? And they just, then they just start beating up whoever they want, the first person to walk into the room. But I'm assuming they're here for me. And if they're here for me, I got to go. Mm-hmm. How do you know they're Nazis? Uh, the swastikas and some of the Visible. Other, oh, yeah. yeah. They're not hiding it. It's, oh, no, no, no. What are you talking about? Like neck tattoos or, or arm tattoos or what? what well, I didn't ask them to you know, disrobe at my door. No, no, but what could you see? I'm, I'm saying they're standing at your door. How uh, do you know? Well, some things like uh, white, white uh, shoelaces, Screams out that they're a white supremacist. Um, other little emblems that they had on them. I'm looking at my shoelaces as you say that. <laughs> Usually for boots, for their combat for, for, boots that they wore. Yeah. So they show up at your door. You know who they are. Correct. And they say what? Well, I wasn't going to let them in, so I left with them. You just said... Not, like, what? Are you scared? Terrified. Terrified. What, what did they come to... Like, what did they want? Are you John? Okay. That's what they... They were looking for John. One of my brothers answered the door, and he came to get me. And when he came to get me, I came to the front door, looked out, and saw the three of them. Um, that's it. And oh. they knew, but, they, but they knew you were John. I mean, they, they knew that they, they, knew they had the right house. John, but yes, there was no knew. way you could say, like, uh, you have the wrong house. We don't know who you are. Like, what are you? My brother had that opportunity and missed it. Because he, <laughs> he, right. he didn't know who they were. So no, so, something that, that you, you point out in the movie that we'll just point out for the viewers here. This is what year we're talking about? This was 1990. Right. So we're talking about pre-cell phone, pre-internet, pre-social media days. Pre-Google. Pre-Google days, yes. right. That, that's important to point out for the context of this story. Very important, yes. Yeah. Okay. That's something that's forgotten. When we uh, first shot the film, we had to come back and reshoot some scenes because some of the younger people that had seen uh, initial clips, initial cuts, were like, why didn't you just Google how to do this, that, or the other? Yeah. So I actually had, we had to add that line to the film. So that people could understand, this was before Google, baby. Yeah. For, for those of you younger listeners. Exist. That's crazy that you have to explain <laughs> that to young people. Uh, think about how, <laughs> I, think, about, think about it for a second. It's crazy. I mean, uh, I was, I think, I think we first got internet, like the really, really slow internet when I was in, I don't know, junior high school, right? AOL, baby. Yeah. I, I mean, Think about the pre-Google days. Like there are people who are listening who don't know what we're talking about. There was a time in your life when Googling something was not a thing. And they're all proud of it. Dude, I podcast had, now. Like, I had how far he's come. I had Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, yeah. You wanted sure. to know something, you looked it up in a book, and if the answer wasn't in that book, you went to the library. And then you were there all day looking for looking you know, for the that. answers, and you had to have encyclopedias, and they had to be. There used to be a thing called encyclopedia salesmen, and they would sell you okay. volumes of encyclopedias because, and you'd have to get the updates every few years. <laughs> um, okay, so they 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 come with us. You go with them. Yes, I got, the, I got in the car, went with them, and in the car there was two were in the front. It was one sitting next to me in the back, and I was sat directly behind the driver, so I had no escape. I was trapped in the back seat. I'm assuming that was done on purpose? Possibly. 
And as, as they drove off, each one was telling me a story of someone who used to be involved and quit coming around and was mysteriously shot, mysteriously stabbed, or mysteriously run over. And once you start hearing the stories, and then the driver reached his hand over the back seat and said, welcome aboard. Oh, shit. You're kidnapped. You just got kidnapped. Like, yeah. You what? literally just got kidnapped by, yeah. by white supremacists. What are they? Why, You're why six, did 16 they by now? How old are you? Right now, at this point, I'm 16 years old. You're right. a 16-year-old Jewish kid, mm-hmm. and pre-cell phone days, pre-internet days, and you, and you realize what's happening. Yes. Why do they want to get to you? Like, it's just they need more people, and they want yes. you to do it. Okay, so they had some, some job that they needed you to do, or? Oh, the job that I was asked to do came later, and I wasn't asked. I was ordered. Okay. <laughs> that was later on down the line. At this point, it was just uh, strength in numbers and also the fact that uh, if I can convince you, if you're against something, to come and be a part of something that I'm, I'm for. It's power. Yes. It shows that my side is stronger than yours. My side is more right than yours. And you become a, you become a talking point for myself and my friends to use. How long were you with them? Uh, I was with them six, seven months. Six, seven months. So this was in May of 1990, and uh, the driver uh, tried to kill me in October. Were you in touch with your parents? At you all? Just, you Did just, they know? They, you just like, threw out the end of the plot. Sorry. <laughs> Did you, uh, so you, okay, I'm, I'm going to go back to looking in from the outside. Your parents are trying to go to this wedding. All of a sudden, where's John? John's not here. Oh, they know I was planning on going to that wedding that day. Oh, okay, okay. But they come home from the wedding, John's not there. Do they call the police? Eventually, they file a missing persons report. We stayed in my city. They wanted me to show them other people. So you stayed at the house? What do you no, mean? No, we left. We, went, we were driving around Ocala, and they were trying to get information out of me, like, where do your different friends live? Oh, they want to get more information out of you about the other people in your group. more people to go to more places, and I just played dumb. I was like, look, I don't know. I just ride in the cars. I don't know. And they, they literally treated me like I was an idiot. Like, how do you not know where your friends live? I was like, I don't know, man. If somebody puts me in a car and drives me someplace... I don't pay attention. I just enjoy the conversation. I was really trying to play stupid to protect my friends because, you know, my friends didn't look out for me. Um, so <laughs> trying to go that extra mile. So they decided to go visit somebody else that they knew. And they took me to this house of this old biker guy. And a couple of them were getting tattoos. And one was so covered in tats that he was like, no, I'm good, man. I don't need one. Uh, and in this guy's house, one, the guy had this old faded red swastika on his arm. It was kind of like a message, like, we have people close to you. We have people close to you. It was a very strong message to, to be sent to a 16-year-old kid by other 16-, 17-, 18-year-old kids. So, they, so then what? They, do they drop you back off at home at some point? Later on, yes, I did get a chance to get back home. But, yeah, they stayed in touch by phone. Uh, not by email, of course. Yeah, sure. Uh, by phone, uh, keeping track. They would come up and visit us from time to time, wanted us to go. I don't think I ever went down to go see them, but they would definitely come and visit us from time to time. So what, what's the next part of their recruitment strategy? How does the story continue here? They want you to be like them. Are they feeding you propaganda? Are they pumping you full of anger? Are they making you do things? Is there activities all this begins to build up over time okay a lot of it starts off with music they just get around singing music together just playing music because that's something that draws a lot of young people together um and when the kids come together listening to music no things build up over time they uh don't start off by saying okay hate everybody tomorrow slowly but surely i start walking you through your life telling you why this failure isn't because of you it's because of this guy 
Like what? Give us give some examples here. Um, this is all incredibly outside of anything any of us have ever experienced. So walk us through it if you can. No, it's not. We just finished elections here in Israel. <laughs> and the states finished them up not too long ago. It's basically telling you that everything wrong in your life is because of them. Mm. And they do it either with finances, religion, uh, your parents are divorced. Most of the, most Canadians come from broken homes. Most of the one, all the ones that I met virtually came from broken homes. So in that, they just say, look, that's just trying to take you and make you adapt to relig- a Judeo-Christian, Judeo-Jewish. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's not us. They're trying to get you to adapt to a culture that's not your own. Not getting paid enough money? Well, that's because of affirmative action. And what they do is they go, th- and no one's making enough money. I'm sure if you ask Bill Gates, are you rich enough for Elon Musk, I think was recently. Yeah, he's number, he was number two. I think he's number two now. Uh, he's back down to number two. When he's he got to number down. one, he what, put out the tweet, uh, okay, back to work. Yeah, back to work. <laughs> Never enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, so everyone wants to make a little bit more. So they walk you through your life, and every single failure was because of somebody else. And no one wants to say, we're trained from day one. I mean, the Bible starts off with that. Uh, Adam and Eve. It's her fault. Exactly. Yeah. So essentially, we, yes. essentially, they're basically saying, look, it's not, it's not your fault that you don't have. It's a conspiracy against you. By, By Jews, blacks, gays. You pick it. Right. You pick it. Are, are, they, are they Christian in any way, or are they also anti-Christian? Both. It depends which group you get involved with. The, the white supremacists. Yes, sir. There's both. There's both. There's both. There's anti-Christian white supremacists mm-hmm. and Christian white supremacists. Correct. Okay. And these guys, these guys, which kind were they? These guys were just teenagers, just alcoholic teenagers that were very, very angry and wanted to hurt people. That's who I fell in with. Were they savvy about trying to brainwash you? I don't think they took a course on how to brainwash. I think they themselves were just angry and it gave them a place to beat up people. They were from Orlando, which is a much larger city. And in a larger city, there's more friction. And there were a lot of skinhead gangs around Orlando, Florida. I think there were 400-something guys running around Orlando that were involved in the skins. This is 30-odd years ago. There were a lot. And some were very, very, very dangerous. I say that talking about the guys that tried to kill me. (laughs) Some guys were very, very dangerous, but they were very dangerous. We already knew. They would run people over just for giggles. I think, I think what Dan is trying to get at a little bit here, if I, it, you might be Sorry. wrong, you correct me. It's not as if there's like an organizational approach to achieving some sort of underlying ethos or ideology. Well, that's what I'm trying it's to It's not understand. an end goal or an end game. It's, it's, what you're describing is just basically youthful rage. A- angry children or angry, angry teenagers that have nothing to do and they need an outlet and they're drinking and there's a lot of probably drug activity as well. Limited, because drugs were something that blacks did. Though I saw that, that, was, their, that's, that was their propaganda. That oh, was okay. their propaganda. You, don't, you shouldn't steal. You should have a job. The most of them didn't have jobs, and they were all kleptomaniacs. Uh, they would steal anything that wasn't nailed down, or so it seemed. Um, I was basically one of the only ones that had a job. Uh, so the guys were just, if you wanted to look up the word loser and see its mugshot, that it was these guys these guys so but it's not like let's say it's not like the kkk which has like a like an organizational structure and leadership and and Uh, yeah i'm just movement and i guess what i'm trying to understand is is there a guidebook is there someone guiding this saying okay next phase we got this guy john daly now we need to start 
amping up the recruitment. Okay, now we need to turn them on to hating blacks. Okay, next we're going to turn them on to hating this. Next we're going to turn, like, is, is there a guidebook here? Is, is there anyone, maybe not the teenagers who I you were talking to? I don't think it was to. a Nazi psychologist that was leading them through as to what steps they should go through to further recruit others. Got it, because the Nazis themselves were incredibly sophisticated in how they turned German society against Jews and everyone else. I mean, there was a lot of... Repetition, 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 yeah. repetition. These guys just copy-paste. So Got it's it. a lot of the same stuff that was used then is used now. Was there anyone sophisticated at, involved, at, at least at the level that you were seeing? Was there anyone s- smart and sophisticated behind this? Oh, there were some that were definitely extremely intelligent. Like one of the guys that I later put uh, in jail, one tried to defend himself in court. He wanted, he demanded the right to be his own uh, attorney. What does it mean to be part of a white supremacist skinhead group? What, what does the next few months look like? Wow. Uh, the next few months. <laughs> um, they would come to Ocala from time to time. They were in one group called Aryan Youth Force, which they were very proud of. That was their name of their little neo-Nazi gang they had in uh, Orlando. Aryan Youth Force eventually merged with a group called the American Front. The American Front was a nationwide neo-Nazi organization. It started in California and morphed all the way across America. Those of you that caught uh, the Geraldo Vera show, we got his nose broken. One of the guys on the stage was the head of the American Front. He came to Ocala one time and I met with him. So these were some of the guys that in time I began to get to meet. When you say national organization, how many people are we talking about? Oh, they would claim things like 10,000. But what they claim and what's real are two totally separate animals. Do you have any idea what was real? Do you have any kind of guess? In the high thousands. High th- across the country? Across the country, definitely. Right. So, so you're talking about what? Probably every city, you're talking about a few hundred people here, a few hundred people here, a few hundred people here? Well, we would go to, say, um, just like a 4th of a July event, and we're walking through, and there would, some guy would come up, just a family guy would come up, come up with his kids, and he'd pull up his sleeve and show a swastika and say, good job, stick with it, and then walk off. And you're like, wow, wow. Just, wow. And I'm sitting there looking at it like, this is America. <laughs> what is that? What just happened to me? Not only am I walking through with these guys that I don't want to be with, but over there you've got this other guy that walks up. Just, you know, Joe Blow approaches you off the street. And again, this was before it was raging through the media and through it was the narrative through different, um, depending on different people's side, on which political aisle is how somebody, they viewed somebody and the other. Uh, even here in Israel, how we view different people, whether someone's racist or not. Um, so the same thing there. So, so you're a high school kid, and yeah. you're hanging out with these guys from time to time. Correct. Oh, how many times a week are you seeing these guys? Mm-hmm. How many times a month? I preferred weekends uh, when possible <laughs> because then, of course, you know, no school. During the week, it varied, <laughs> but uh, often enough. Often enough. And you're, you're going around town, and are, are you starting to understand, or are they trying maybe to make you think that – were everywhere? I would think the introduction to a police officer who said, if you ever get in trouble, let me know so I can take care of it. Yeah, stuff like that lets you know that uh, they're everywhere. And where are you going to run? They bragged about knowing judges. I mean, they bragged about knowing a lot of people. Do you think they did? Do you think they actually knew judges and politicians and things like that? Or were they just trying to you know, inflate their own importance? I would say they did. Yeah? I would say they did. I'd, both. A combination. That's scary. 
16 years old, man. Yeah. And, and this whole time, you're hiding the fact you're Jewish. Yes. But you're perfectly aware that you're Jewish and that you don't want to be with these people. I'm a walking dead man. You know that. Not a drop, At 16. Not, not a doubt in my mind. Not a doubt in my mind. Forgive me for saying this, but like, please. They, they just, it seems like they did shitty due diligence on you. <laughs> no, but for real, like your 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 anti-racist skinhead friends knew you were Jewish. Yes, they didn't like throw me under the bus. No, like, yeah, not, we'll give you everybody, but John. Because, not like you know, that. John, no, 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 John's no. no. I'm not even saying like that. Like they want to come to Ocala. They want to go and they want to get you. Mm-hmm. They must want to know: Is it worth our time to go get this 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 kid? Is it like? Is this someone we want to be around? Let's look into his background a little bit. Let's see what's going on. Like, what? Google me. Right. Again, Don't I know there's Google. no Google, but. But, you know, I, I don't know. They're, they're, While we were driving around, one of them showed me a patch. They had this guy come through that had spent the night at their, their house or one of the places they had. And he showed me this patch that was in this guy's backpack. And they told me they pulled it out. They rummaged through his stuff. It was another skinhead that was just traveling through. When they saw this patch that looked like it had, like, some kind of Star of David-type emblem on it, this guy woke up to them beating him. And so they passed over this patch and said, does this look Jewish to you? And I thought right then and there that I was being called out. So they're paranoid, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's no, like, can you explain this? We found this in your stuff. What is this? It's, okay. it's just, like, straight on, like, oh, this. Quick the violence. Yeah. Quick the violence, yeah. This guy woke up getting beaten. Um, I felt bad for him. It's when they passed me the patch, I just played ignorance. Like, I, I don't know. I have no idea. This might be Jewish. It might not. I have no clue. And to this day, I don't remember. Did, it be, did, did, did you ever get to a point where it became more easy for you because you were always feeling like a walking dead man where, you know, you just stepped right into it and said, you know what, I'm just going to you know, join them and be exactly like they are because that's my strategy for never getting found out. If I, I, was if I become the mo- most ruthless guy there, there's no way they'll think that I'm... I was a great parrot. Okay. I knew how to take what was said and then say it back the way that they wanted it to be said. Um, and at, at no point... At no point were you like, I got to go to the cops. I got I to tell my parents something. I met a cop. Yeah. Oh, okay. the cop who. Yeah. What am I going to do? Go to the cops and be like, hey, how do I know that this cop is an okay cop? So you're paranoid as hell right now. A little bit. Right? Yeah, a little and bit. again, we're talking about a 16-year-old. So you're, you know less of the world, supposedly, than adults. And this is pre-Google days. And pre, you know, you don't know how to go to the FBI when you're 16. Indeed. In the pre-Google days. I, I keep saying that because I think it's, we really forget how central having this, you know, access, fast access to the internet. Information. Is, and right. information is so, it's just become part of our lives. Yeah. They so couldn't they, Facebook you and then see pictures of your bar mitzvah. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> you, think, you think today they do that though? You think they're looking people up on social media? I do. Right? I'm sure y'all do. No, we do, but, yeah. uh, you know, when I asked earlier how savvy these guys are, how smart they are, how sophisticated they are. Yeah, everybody's on social media now. That's, um, oh, no, now they're super savvy. Yeah. That's the difference between what you're asking them. I'm trying to give the answers from 30 years ago. Right, right, right. not getting into where they're at today. Where they're at today, they're, at, they're super savvy, super enmeshed into the whole tech world. Um, so yes. we'll, we'll, we'll get to that because I think that's a whole different fascinating conversation that we want to learn about. That's, we'll, scary, we'll, that's the scary part. We'll, we'll get to that because, you know, we, we just want to understand your, your experience, your life story. Um, and I'm trying to understand this. I think you are too as, as this unfolds because it's, it's crazy to think about. 16-year-old kid, uh, Jewish. 
Are you at any point starting to buy their propaganda? Do you think it's starting to affect you at any point? Or are you literally just acting to save your life every day? Acting to save your life. And it was really easy when they would drop into something talking about something anti-Semitic to bounce it off towards another race or another religion and say, look, hey, man, what about those guys? And they're very easily steered and manipulated. Mm. Their anger was something that it was like uh, water takes the path of least resistance. So what you do is you just take the guys, and as they're getting more and more aggressive and more and more angry, just take it and say, okay, I'm going to put this here, and it, it just turns them a little bit. So instead of focusing on Jews, which I knew that eventually if they spent too much time on Jews, they might look at me and go, okay, hey, man, we got a question for you. And uh, that, was not a, that was not a conversation that I wanted to be a participant in. What, what, could so, they, what would they have asked you that, you know, you couldn't lie your way out of? I mean, what, what were you afraid of that they would have steered it towards? Are you Jewish? And you say no. Right. Uh, correct. I mean, your last name is Daly. That's not like the most <laughs> Jewish sounding last name. It's beneficial name. that my Jewish grandmother married an Irish Catholic. Right, yes. right, right. I mean, if your name was <laughs> like Berkowitz or whatever, right? <laughs> oh, I, I get exactly. it. I mean, it's, like, it's, it's like, think about it. You're, you're in a fully immersed paranoid situation whereby you don't know when your last moment is going to be. You don't know what they know. You literally don't know. Do they, do they know something about me? Every day. They could know something that, that they're hiding from you and they're going to ask you a question. See, it's correct. And, and, and was, that, was that something you were thinking about, by the way? Like every time you were like, shit, do they know today? Do they know today? Do they know today? Would you? Oh, I'd be paranoid yeah. as hell. All the time. Yeah, man. What are you guys doing? Like, well, first of all, what are they doing? What, what are they doing? Are they... Are you asking like, are they... Are well, they, this is something you asked me... Well, yeah, like... You know, before. It, okay. What so. does a white supremacist group in Ocala or Orlando do on a regular basis other than drink... It, is, it organized, is it like organized crime? Are they trying to like push over stores, rob people, steal a car. <laughs> like, you're laughing. It's a naive question. I know, but it's, it's the, no. look at, like, because gangs, any, for example, any, gangs any, have, any question is a real question. Any question is a real question and it deserves a real answer. So what were they involved in? Uh, these guys looked at one of my friends afterwards referred to them as like a white mafia that they were interconnected uh, crimes, yeah, there were some in different areas that were, that were committing crimes. Like there was one guy that I ostensibly was a hitman for the Colombian mafia, uh, that he blew people up. That was his job. That was out of Miami. Um, some actually had real daytime jobs. A lot of them stole. Not like hitting banks and stuff like that stole, but just like, uh, again, kleptomaniacs, but it's not nailed down. If they, like when, when we first got coffee and this room was open, oh yeah, man. <laughs> The, all the chairs would it be gone. They would have called their friends. All the electronics, yeah. I thought about that when I went downstairs. I'm like, this is Israel. I don't have to lock this door. If I was in the States and I was at a community college, I would not leave this room. You don't know the neighborhood, right? Uh, I know I don't know the neighborhood. There are some, places, there are some places in Israel that definitely need to lock their doors. No, but it's not. Not like, yeah. Yeah. So, so different people, some of them are lowlifes. Some of them have day jobs. Most of them were people that were on the fringe, again, and people on the fringe are not what you consider normative members of society. So mm. you're trying to look at them as a normative member of society that tries to have a job, has tries to have an education, a family, and do something productive. For them, what they were doing was productive because it was for their race. Mm. And that was their goal. That was what they were focusing on. So as long as they could focus their anger and their direction towards that, that's what was important to them. As an organization... Uh, you know, just kind of following up on what Benny asked, as an organization, were, were, you know, was there any 
directive saying, you know, we're going to make money from this or we're going to, I don't know, start fights here. Or membership gonna, dues. Membership dues. So you had to pay? I never did, but yeah. But people did? A story I was told was an American front was started and they began with the membership dues to pay drug, for their drug habits. For the drug habits. Were they involved in drug dealing, by the way? I'm sure some were. Yeah. Okay. So what do you do with them on a regular basis? Are you fighting? Again, when I was with them, we would usually just get together and look for a place to drink. There was one pool hall that we were asked to be the, uh, the guards, if you will. Not necessarily the guards in a formal manner, but if there was a problem, it was convenient for them to say, okay, we have these guys. And we just kind of sat outside or sometimes we'd go in and get a pool, a pool table and actually play. Um, so if they had a problem, it was very easy for them to say, okay, we want somebody out and we could assist in that. How many of you are there at this point? Uh, we were probably six or seven that hung out together a lot, relatively frequently. And you're at school during during the week, and and do people at your school with you know that you're affiliated with with these other with these other kids? In time, definitely yes. And nobody's saying like, why is the Jewish guy a, a white supremacist skinhead? I cut ties with everybody that knew me because I didn't want somebody to say something. One, I didn't want somebody to say something that would potentially put me in a situation that could hurt me. And second, I didn't want to put them in a situation that they could not get out of. I was not going to do to somebody else what was done to me. Yeah. So I'm often asked, why didn't you bring friends or family with me? It's like, I cut ties. Because why would you do that to somebody? I knew who these animals were, and I knew where, what their end game was. I just hoped that I could spend my time with them, finish up, and join the merchant marine, or do something, and just bail out. So um, you, you were like biding your time until you could get out of town? Yes, Definitely. Definitely. What is the end game? That would depend on which group you're dealing with. Uh, a lot of them are looking now towards total societal collapse. Doesn't seem that far off. That's considered an accelerationist. An acceleration wants total society collapse of society. Then you have some that want to have like a, a pure racial enclave, like say maybe choose Idaho and we'll just all move to Idaho and it'll just be for white people, those that belong to our group or that believe like us or think like us. Um, do they want a societal collapse because they want to start over, or do they want a societal collapse because they want there to be less people on Earth and they want a lot of people to die? Or is it that they're environmentalists in, mind, in the mind and they want uh, a more two. sustainable? So it's all of the above. It's, it's, it means justify the end, ends justify the means. You can always find somebody that will hold on to your brand of crazy. Okay. Yeah. And, so in, and the, in the movie... You mention that you're at one point get some kind of promotion within this organization. Correct. What does that mean? I was invited to lunch by um, the girlfriend of the second in command of the American Front, one of the original founders. National. Correct. She came up to Ocala. She lived in. Uh, she was from Ocala, but was living in South Florida with him. Came up together with somebody else, and they took me out to lunch. And we first go out to lunch. I asked, nice, nice kosher lunch. Are we paying for this? No, is it kosher? Because, <laughs> <laughs> because I knew them. Usually they would do a hog and jog. They would eat someplace, get up and run out. Oh, seriously? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What a bunch of pricks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was one of the things. A hog and jog. Go someplace, you eat all the food you can, and then just go Bail. running out the door. Yeah, so I was like, are we paying for this? Because I, I didn't want to be a part of it. I'm like, I live here. I live here. I have a job. I will pay for my lunch. You know, if there's some kind of, that's, that's what I wanted to know. And they began talking and she said, we would like to promote you to Northern States, Northern Florida, Northern, Northern chapter leader, 
Northern Florida chapter leader of the American Front. So basically all Northern Florida is yours. What does that mean? Start recruiting. To do what? Be members of the American Front, to be a racist. To, to do what, though? Like, is, again, is there a point to the organization beyond recruiting and recruiting and recruiting and convincing people? The day of the rope, which is the race war. The day of the rope is when they hang all the people that is against them. Opposite races, opposite religions, people that they disagree with. Good times. Uh, yeah. Think of Cambodia in the <coughs> 1970s. Khmer Rouge, that kind of fun. That's what they're thinking. So they just give you this promotion and say, you're in charge of all of northern Florida. And you're 16, 17. 16 at this point, yes. This was between my junior and senior years of high school. When you look at that, what you just said, the day of the rope from the outside, mm -hmm. the first thing that pops into my mind is, are these people fucking delirious? Like, in, in, and I'm not saying that to be, to be pejorative you know, or, or, or derogatory against them. And, but, but, <laughs> no, it's not, you know, it's not God, a personal God thing. God forbid you know, we should say God, something bad. We don't want to offend no, any no, of our I'm skinhead serious. listeners. No, it's not about offending them. <laughs> the, 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 what I mean by that is I don't think that they're stupid. But what I, what, when you look from the outside, we grew up, but, as, you, as did but, you, you believe in the, you know, the supremacy of the United States military, for example. Uh, growing up in America, you, you believe that um, you know, if something were to pass like that, mm -hmm. where there would be like some sort of a local rebellion against or an insurrection against it, there would just be overwhelming force to put it down, essentially. Yet, when I, mention, when I say the word delirious, it's like they honestly do believe that there may be a, a, a way to create some sort of a force compliance scenario. Delusional, whereby, maybe? Delusional. Delusional. Yeah. Where, so, so it's delusional in the sense that like why would the rest of america go along with that sort of a thing like you, you're going to recruit hundreds of millions of people to believe you don't need that many but again you might be able to get one armory but you still have an air force base out in california that's going to bomb you from the sky it's going to be carpet bombing a city where there's a revolution going on inside of it probably not probably not but it's physically possible these were the days before they had uh, the surgical strikes, like the shock mm -hmm. and awe that, we, that we've seen ever since uh, the second Iraq war, which is like, all right, we're just going to go through and just, we're going to bop this house, not the one next to it. We're just going to go through this window, and you can watch it live on TV. Um, that's... Uh, Actually started in the first Gulf War, but... Uh, sorry. Back, background in military sorry. history. <laughs> um, I love military history, but you know, we're all, I'm all over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, can you imagine the American Air Force... We're talking about, if I understand correctly, though, we're talking about like a civil war type scenario that they're trying to start, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So if they can work together, say, with a Muslim extremist group or a black extremist group that wants, like there was a, a rally with the Ku Klux Klan and the Black Panther Party in the state of Florida for blacks to go back to Africa. It was something they both agreed on in their statement, so that's why they held a joint meeting together, a joint uh, rally. And it's, it's stuff like that. If I can find the some... The Ku Klux Klan... And the Black Panthers. And the Black Panthers held a joint rally. This was 30-odd years ago. Yeah. yeah, it's not that shocking. Yeah. Seriously? No. Okay. <laughs> the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It isn't just I'll only work with white people, but if I have a, a group of Spanish guys that are willing to shoot a bunch of white people or a bunch of black people or Jewish people or other Spanish people... But they don't like Let's Hispanics. Do There'll be fewer of them. So when the race war does come, they've already helped uh, call the herd somewhat. 
That's their mindset. Do you think that this is where we're going? There are some things that I see that I find uh, incredibly disconcerting, yes. Is it... We're like three guys from America that are having this conversation in Israel, so we're a little removed from it. But I'm also disturbed often uh, by a lot of things that I see, especially this past year. It's just been like uh, uh, everything's been hyper, you know, accelerated in many in many ways. No, it's it's uh, the world finds itself in a strange place. And you mentioned societal collapse by chance. I was reading a New York Times article the other day about societal collapse and about how there are people that study this. Uh, academically, that are quite concerned at the moment about many things that are going on, and rightfully so, um, because we seem to have a lot of the prerequisite ingredients for it, even before you put on the the added stress of a pandemic. Um, and 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 I have a friend who's a hundred times smarter than me. I, I can't say his name because he doesn't want to be publicly identified, but he's an academic, an historian, and a philosopher. And he recognizes all of the classical signs of the societal collapse of, of the West, of America especially. Yeah. And he's not a crazy person. And when That's not crazy at all. When he talks, I listen. Um, we do recognize a decline of the West as compared to the rise of other parts of the world, that's for sure. It's not an accident that at the same time that Trump came to power in America, and, and, and Trump is populist, you saw populist movements in Hungary and in Brazil and to an extent in the UK and in other parts of Europe. The populist leader in, in France, almost one didn't uh, last time around. Um, but even in India, you know, anything you see a societal challenges and that's where populism thrives by, by recruiting and by building an us against them narrative. And that us against them, them narrative can be Racial, but it can also be political and it can also be economic. It can be anything. Yeah. Why are you late to work? Do you say, because I didn't set my alarm? No, you blame it on other drivers or some other reason. The dog ate my homework. Ever since we're, we ex- we've started to exist and gotten to know ourselves, we lie about why something isn't our fault. Mm. No, I didn't eat that extra cookie. It was obviously the dog or my younger brother or my younger sister. And that's just something when you look at it on a national level, no one wants to say that my country is failing because of us. It's obviously because of them. And if I, can blame, if I can find them to blame it on, that they can't stand, they're not strong enough or loud enough or organized enough to defend themselves, my side is always going to be the one that's going to win. So really it's just taking fear and putting a bonfire under it and stoking the fear. Mm. And, and to you know, go full circle on this, you know, we started out talking about how your, you know, the story that we're telling here came up in a time when there was no internet, social media, Google, so on and so forth. And now we do have all these things. And essentially, they just hyper-exacerbate all of these sort of issues because you literally have a technology now which is designed to be binary. It doesn't foster nuanced understanding. It creates tribalism. It puts people into agreeing with something or disagreeing with something. Well, every every clip, I mean, did you see that clip... Every single clip of any anything you want goes viral. And and uh, in the past week, there was a clip of uh, an ultra orthodox Jewish family walking down the street, either in America or in the UK. I don't I don't remember. And a guy walks past them, turns around, pulls a knife out, and comes after them. And they have a baby. And you know, so you see, all you need is one or two of these things to happen, and it goes viral. And then people get 
a worldview that's like, oh, this is happening everywhere constantly all the time. Um, now, I will say to counter that, there seems to be a well-meaning and good-hearted movement of let's find acts of kindness or animals hugging each other or whatever, and those are also going viral. Because I think as people see the ugliness in the world exacerbated, like you said, magnified, people are looking to counter that and they're looking for is there still good in humanity and oh look at this guy you know giving the homeless man a sandwich oh look at this black guy and white guy hugging look at this jew and muslim being friends yet at the same time watching news that uh pushes nothing but fear and anger and rage about the world around you yeah so which news are you watching i mean that that's you know well what news are you watching because i'm watching the same news that john's watching and it seems like to me, a, a couple of observations, it seems like we as human beings constantly want to, want, and, 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 it, and it's want to, it's deeply ingrained within us to believe that humanity is overwhelmingly good and that there is... Some people don't. Some people don't, but I'm I th- saying... I think, I'm I think saying the heart of conservative, conservatism is that humanity is not inherently good. No, of course not, but it's, it's, you want to believe that there's a net... It's not a judgment against conservatives. It, it's, I think that's trying to understand you know, the psychology behind political directions. Um, no, but I'm trying to go to where you just went in terms of like, there mm. is a presence online that, you know, let's show things that are good or there's news that's out there that's showing good, good things, but it's always, uh, and we want to do that because we want, you want, maybe, like maybe a better to. way for me to say it is you want to be hopeful that there's going sure. to be a prosperous and stable future. Sure. You want to, I'm an optimist. you want to be optimistic that your children are not going to suffer like you had to if you suffered, or that they're going to have a better chance. You, you want your you children want, to have a better life than you, for right. sure. Uh, and, and we're also going through a period of time where we seem to be, at least in recent uh, history, a generation, our generation, uh, where ag, if you look at it from the aggregate, we're not doing as well as a generation, and we don't have as many opportunities, some let's ways. say, in some ways, yeah, as our parents may ways. have. Uh, so we're in this sort of a place where we're confronted to, with these topics and we're thinking about them. We do have the social media. And to bring it back to the news, I mean, look, my aunt, my wife, says to me yesterday, you know, she started asking me questions about some current events. You know, it doesn't matter what it was. And I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. She goes, you totally tuned out. I'm like, to be honest, I kind of did because I needed to be a little bit less anxious and I needed to be a little bit happier. And if you stop listening to the news every single moment of every single day, you know, you can be a little happier. Uh, and, yeah. and, and now when you turn on the news, you know, if you watch NBC Nightly News, for example, and I watch it on YouTube in the mornings, which is ironic because you're, it's You're the last news. person who watches NBC Nightly News. But okay. because of the fact that they're competing with media such as our, ours here, with, with, with uh, you know, the mainstream media and is, is now competing with, uh, you know, decentralized media, you know, everything is, is their form of clickbaity. So it's like everything is breaking news. Yeah. Breaking news, you know, tourism is up and people are traveling more in the United States. Like, how is that breaking? Breaking news, Netanyahu sneezed. Yeah, like, breaking news exactly. back in back in my day. Breaking news was like a war. <laughs> yeah, like planes flying to the twin towers was breaking news. Anything less is it was an invasion. Exactly, yeah, it was yeah. Red Dawn or something I, like that. That I, was something that would make uh, massive fo- news. For I follow players. NFL on NFL stuff on on social media. I, just, I like it or sports in general. And so, you know, I, I like the Chicago Bears. I like to follow the Chicago Bears. And they posted breaking news. You know, and you're expecting to be like, they just picked up this player. They just dropped that player or whatever. And it's like, 
we added a third assistant defensive coach to our team. So, so one of the respondents was like, can we cut it with the breaking news stuff? You're like, <laughs> I'm like looking at this and then it's like, okay. <laughs> you know. We're so ready to be afraid that we're always looking for something horrible to be happening. To prepare ourselves for the uh, fight or flight response that's ingrained in all of us. So I think once we see breaking news, we, our first reaction is, okay, do I need to be ready to run from this? Do I need to be ready to fight this? Tell me how to feel. And they know it. Exactly. It's a clickbait. That's exactly mm-hmm. what you said. I mean, and that's how they have to work these days. Um, I, I, I just for, you know, we built up the story and we built up the story and, and I don't want to, there's a lot more to talk about, but I want, I want to just for a second, get back to your personal story here. So you're, so you're now 16, 17, 16, 16. You've spent how many months now with this white supremacist organization? What period are we at? I uh, met them in May. You've been going around with them. Um, you met them in May of 1990? Correct. And things take a turn for the worse. Indeed. What does that mean? <laughs> uh, so we, we can say you had a cool summer. It's a cool summer with the bros. <laughs> I was chilling every moment. It was the best summer of my life. Super yeah, relaxing. Yeah, did, going to the fantastic. beach. Did, did, you, did they ever make you do physical things that you were like, oh shit, I really don't want to have to do this? Did you have to beat people up? Did you have to steal things? Did The only time I was, okay, steal something, that would usually be uh, if you'd go into uh, a mini market or something like that, you would be the cover for somebody else <laughs> to go ahead and um, to steal, steal cigarettes or try and grab something. Uh, we would definitely steal beer, go running out of the, uh, the store with uh, a case of beer. Fighting-wise, it was only one time that I was kind of pushed to fight somebody that I'd normally wouldn't have uh, gotten involved with, and that was at uh, the place we hung out at, because there was one guy that had pulled a gun on somebody recently, and the night that he showed up again, and they were looking for, and the management was like, we really want this guy out of here. People were looking for a way to beat him up, and everyone, different ones were like, I'm on parole, or I was just recently this, or I was recently that, so everyone had a reason why they couldn't. The only person that was clean was John. They were like, hey, he's yours. And I'm like, oh, yay. Yeah. Good times. Now, are, are you a big kid? Are you a strong kid? Do you know how to fight? Uh, I mean, you said you had brothers, but do you know how to fight? Everyone thinks they know how to fight until they're actually until, in a fight. Until they have to fight, yeah. It doesn't matter what level, what, how many black belts you've got. Okay, once you get punched in the face, everything goes out the window, which, of course, we've got... Uh, well, every, every plan is, fan, is fine until it makes contact with the enemy. Yeah, with reality. Exactly. So, no, there weren't really times that I had to get out and do a lot of stuff. With the guy with the fight, it was... Um, they were trying to shove him into me, so it would be something that everyone had a reason to jump on top of him. Mm, like to, to instigate it and make it look like it was... Like he was starting Like he was starting correct, the fight. Correct. Uh, what I did was I managed to convince the guy to get into it. I'm just taking a long story and condensing sure. it. It took a little bit of time to make this happen. Convinced him to get into a car because that peop, some people were trying to give him a ride out, saying, look, if he leaves with you, you're now inheriting his problem. Mm. So you should probably stay. You can go, but you don't want to be taking him with you because you're going to be inheriting his problem, uh, which is basically the fact that somebody at some point was going to, there's going to be an act of violence against him. Maybe not us, the Skins, maybe somebody else that was at this club that had been there the night that he was with somebody that pulled a firearm. Um, and ultimately, I got him into a car, drove to the back of the, uh, the parking lot to a hidden place where no one could really see him. And uh, yeah, he got his brains beat in by pretty much everybody who was there. Oh, was that a awful experience for you or like, I don't know if, if, if any listeners here have had to employ violence against someone, um, 
you said you were not inclined to violence. You were not. I didn't rush to it at the time. Mm. I would say I'm a little bit more inclined now than I was back then. Was this awful for you? It was scary, yeah, because you're seeing directly in front of your eyes happening to somebody what you're waiting to happen to you. Oh, right. You're, you're, it hadn't, yeah, they hadn't gotten to me yet. You're on edge every day. Correct, and so I'm witnessing what these guys actually did. And Is this so the first I'm, time you saw it? In that manner, yes. In, in that brutal of a manner? In that manner, correct. Wow. How, so, f- how far away now are we from, from them discovering you? This was probably August. Um, my murder was in October. Attempt. Yes. How do, <laughs> no, I died. I died. I felt myself die. Oh, oh. We're gonna get to that. <laughs> so so to people that. tend to get kind of like, well, wait, you're here. I'm like, no, what? Yeah, we're gonna get to that. So I, 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 how does it go down? How do they, meaning, how do they discover that you're Jewish? And was it because they discovered that you were Jewish? The same woman that I met, met with, that's that was the girlfriend from my city that was dating the second in command of the American Front. Mm-hmm. Um, she stole a bunch of stuff from them. On the back of her neck, she had a tattoo that said American Front. I got a phone call one o'clock in the morning one night of a very drunk David Lynch and a very drunk other guy that was with him saying, we want the tattoo back. Wait, what? Say that again? We want the tattoo back. How do you get a tattoo back? I don't know. How do you get a tattoo back? How do you steal a tattoo? No, they were very, we want the tattoo back. I'm very confused. Can you willingly remove a tattoo off of another human being's body? Oh, you're, you're talking about... They physically wanted the tattoo. Of this woman. What they were saying to me was killer without saying killer. They were telling you to do that. Yes. Holy crap. Yeah. That was not a request. It was an order. It was not metaphorical. Yeah. Oh, no, not a metaphor. I thought it was a metaphor. Hmm. Wow. It was real. One o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I got this phone call. So you get a phone call from the drunk leader of this national white supremacist movement telling you to kill this woman. Yes. Who's his girlfriend? Who's his ex-girlfriend. Ex. Well, because he's getting back together with the wife of his child or something, something along. The, it's all kinds of intrigue. <laughs> yeah, it's shinhead shenanigans. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So now what do you have to do? I mean, you have to kill her. You're 16. 16. And you just got an order to kill someone. Yes. And? I called her for a meeting and sat her down and said, listen, I don't know what you did, but this is what they want to have done to you. I think she stole some things from them. I was like, whatever you did, you need to make it right. Because they want you dead and they want me to do it. Well, is the ex-wife of my best friend, she also knew my secret. Mm. So to say you her, knew that you knew this woman. Yes. She is the ex-wife of your best friend. At the time, at yes. At the time. Skinhead friend, correct. So what she did was she went to them, went to another group and another group of skinheads who were affiliated with the American Front as well without going directly to the head honchos and said, listen, because she was trying to bypass those who were trying to kill her. And so she went to a different chapter and said, John's a Jew. Why would she sell you out? Save her 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 life. life. Didn't you just try to save her life, though? So? So? Have you ever ever, uh, looked into drowning? If somebody's drowning, what do you do? They will drown you as well, correct? Yeah. They'll push you underwater trying to save themselves. So they stop and think for a moment. Poor Dan. Dan's not going to survive because I'm using Dan as a, as a life preserver. Wow. Was, was she a white supremacist herself? Yes. Okay. So why didn't she sell you out this whole time if she knew about you? No reason. No need. No benefit. Whatever. I've never gone back and asked her. I, I mean, it's, it's conceivable that she, if she was being strategic, that it was a card that she could keep for a rainy day. Oh, that was definitely her. 
Right. That was definitely her, yeah. This yeah. guy ever come? I mean, it was like the rainy day came, and now I can take this 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 card out of the out of the, you know, out of my wallet and use it. I can cash it in. And the listeners are like, "Are you guys going to drag this out much longer, or are we actually going to get to what happened?" So okay, so you get a phone call one night. Okay, I was ordered to to kill her. Uh, I met up with her and I warned her about what they were, these guys were planning on doing. That I was the instrument they wanted to have used, and um, she got the other another group involved. So I received a phone call one night ordering me to attend an officers' meeting in Daytona Beach, Florida. Like, okay, from from who? From the other group? From her? From her? From her? Numerous phone calls I received, not only at work but also at my house, that I had to be there that night. And um, so off I went. I, I, I gotta yeah. ask something. You're living at home. Yes. You're a 16 year old. Do your parents Correct. have any clue what's going on? Definitely, they knew. They knew you were a skinhead. Correct. A, a white supremacist skinhead. Indeed. And your Jewish father and Jewish mother didn't. Did they ever say anything? Did they ever ask questions? They hated it. But in my mind, I decided I was going to put my family further and further away from me. So I became a stranger in the house because I thought it would make my death easier for them to deal with after I passed. You knew you were going to die? I had a pretty strong suspicion, yeah. So you're walking around as a 16-year-old on death row, basically, in your head? Essentially, yes. And your Jewish family, who you said it wasn't, you had a bar mitzvah, you had Judaic in the house, just never confronted you about this? Confronted my mother helped my dad understand that, listen, if we push him too far and he goes to them, he'll never come back. Did they think you had turned psychologically? Did they think that you had started to buy the propaganda? Oh, my dad definitely knew that I liked to antagonize him. That he knew. But as for buying the propaganda, no. No, they knew that I was... A few weeks before uh, I was jumped, I came home from work one night, sat down, was eating dinner. And uh, my mother approached me and sat with me and said, John, what are you going to do? And I knew exactly what she meant. What are you going to do with this group? They're going to hurt you. And I was like, okay, what do you want me to do? We can either have a going away party, and I'll tell them that night that I'm Jewish, and I'll never come home again because they'll kill me. That's option one or option two. It can be a surprise. What do you prefer? You said this to your mom. Indeed. So she, she flat out knew. You knew that she knew. And, mm-hmm. and you, you're basically telling her, I don't have a choice. Yeah. Choose one or the other. Okay. I can die as a surprise, my death will come as a surprise, or it can be pre-planned. And, and picking up and leaving is, as a family, or just you sending you off to like boarding school somewhere, like none of these are options? Financially, no. no. These were not options that were practical. And I think when a 16-year-old tells you that the reach of these people, as an, as an adult, you just think, well, stop hanging out with them. Yeah. Like, but... You know, what up the cop or the other guys that are traveling the country that literally traveled the country. They would kill somebody in one state and then work their way from skinhead group to skinhead group to hide out to get to another part of America. Do, do you ever, you know, you know what, let's finish the practical story and then I've got a, a question. <clears throat> so you, you go to Daytona Beach. Yes. And? And uh, we had a party. It was great. <laughs> As I was there, they were listening to music in every room I would go into. Um, like, there was one room that there were a lot of firearms in, and they, would, they were lifting up, po- one guy was lifting up, pointing him at me. And they kept lowering the barrels down, pushing the barrels down. No, 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 no. He wanted to shoot me. Are, are you suspicious at this point? 
or are you just constantly suspicious I'm beginning, all the time? I'm beginning to feel a little bit more uncomfortable <laughs> because this is not average behavior. Let's point guns at John. That was not average behavior. People uh, ignoring me was not average behavior when I would engage or try and have a conversation with somebody or them trying to get me drunk was not average. Usually just can't have to drink on their own, but when they're trying to force it on me, mm. why aren't you drinking more? I was pouring it out and walking around with a half-empty beer can through the night mm. because I just had this sense, don't, don't, don't go too far. Um, and there were a lot of things that happened leading up to that night that really helped essentially save my life, which I believe in Hashkacha Pratit. Um, I don't know how you would pronounce that, but... Personal divine intervention, maybe? Okay. Right? Sure. Um, I think Hashkacha is more like oversight. Oversight. Like God's watching over you personally. Yes. Yeah. Involved, correct. So you're walking around this house, you, something's off. Something is in you, you, they're acting very differently around you specifically than they ever have. Correct. At one point I walked into a room and I heard the leader saying it was 14 against the five. I knew exactly what he was talking about. What does that mean? <clears throat> five skinheads and a group in Dallas, Texas were going to gas a synagogue. They would have gotten away with it except that 14 testified, testified against the five. So five got in trouble because 14 spoke, and they said it was 14 against the five, and you automatically was talking about something bad was going to happen that night. The only way we're going to get in trouble is if somebody speaks. So if everybody's quiet, we're okay. So you hear this phrase uttered in yes. some room. As I walk into a room, and I knew, it, I knew that something bad was going to happen. Now, you don't think it's going to be me. You, you didn't <clears throat> suspect it was against you? No. Their first plan <clears throat> was to shoot me. Now, they'd accidentally shot somebody else, Two weeks prior. And so the leader was convinced, Richie, he was told, listen, there's a limited number of how many accidents you can have around firearms before accidents turn into purposes. Right. And they're going to start investigating. So we need to find another way to deal with this. Well, you're by the sea. What do you do? Drown him. So it was decided to take me down to the sea. We all go down to the water. And I'm thinking, great, we're down by the water. I can leave these drunk fools behind because I have to work tomorrow. And I've got an 80-mile drive back to my house. 80? Yes. 80. Yeah, it wasn't close. So I'm there with these guys, and the goombas are running around playing and whatnot. At one point, one of them punched me behind my ear. And when I turned to him, somebody shouted out, now. And at that point, I had seven skinheads jumping me, starting punching me and beating on me, trying to get me to fall to the ground. But I knew when I hit the ground, that's when the boot party starts and they start kicking. So I kept trying to stand back up again. And they're striking harder and harder and harder. And eventually there's this thing you know, getting knocked out. And so when I'm on the ground, I couldn't get back up again. I just curl into a fetal ball and they're throwing their kicks into me. And you can feel the difference between combat boots and tennis shoes. Yeah. There were guys that had tennis There were two guys that had tennis shoes on. Uh, the guys who were attacking me, one was a high-ranking officer in the American front. The other one was the Florida state leader for the white Aryan resistance. So these weren't just like, you know, Small-time guys. All these guys were connected within the organization. So when I heard officers meeting, I thought, okay, this is an officers meeting. That is an officer I have to go. This is something I, I'm required to participate in. I didn't think this was the direction it was going to go. Uh, so throughout the beating, and then uh, as I'm going in and out of unconsciousness, one dragged me into the sea. And as he was dragging me into the sea, that's when I looked into his eyes and I saw, I understood what was going to happen. I said, don't do this thing. Don't do this thing. You told him? Yeah. You knew this guy? 
It was Richie. Yeah, it was the first guy I met. First guy that knocked on my door. They drove me off. Him. And he's looking at you. I mean, he was, I don't want to say your friend, but your ally, whatever, a, a week before, a day before, whatever it was, until he found out. That night, yeah. And then it switches, and now you are. He's got to go. He's got to go. You're, you're a monster that needs to be killed. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. Jesus Christ. Is the hatred, I mean, clearly the hatred is there because you're a Jew at that moment, but is it, he's a Jew, we have to kill him, or he deceived us, he could be an informant for the FBI, he could be, you know, if he's lying about this, we don't really know who he is and we have to deal with the problem. Is, is it more the first or the second? He's a Jew. He's one of us. That's definitely a matter of embarrassment. Definitely a matter of embarrassment. Nobody wants to have somebody, you know, yeah, nobody wants to have somebody like that in their organization. You keep promoting them all. It's like having somebody at the top of the ADL that's like Yakuza-style tattoos under his clothes that are all white supremacists. Yeah. And you look at him one day, and you're like, wait a second. You run into him at the mikveh, and this guy's covered in racist tattoos, and you're like, well, how did this, what are you doing working for the ADL, man? <laughs> Or some other Jewish organization. So they're unrelenting. So he's looking at you in the eyes. I could see the hatred in his eyes, and I just felt, don't do this thing. I said, don't do this thing, don't do this thing. Um, No help was coming, and as as he was dragging me out, now up to this point I've been beaten on for at least 20, 30 minutes. They've been kicking me in and out of the water on the shoreline for a while. Um, as he dragged me in, the guys were still kicking me. So in the beginning, when I felt the water, I thought, oh, this is awesome. What does water do? The friction slows down the kicks. Mm. These scientists are doing me a favor until I saw his eyes. When I saw his eyes, then I understood what was going to happen. And slightly before that, somebody shouted out, die, you boy, die. And there's just, you got no doubts. You knew you were going to die. Oh, yeah, man. It's like I had, it was a calmness came over me because I didn't have to be afraid anymore. Whatever happened now was out of my hands. I'm dead. So just relax. It'll be what it'll be. And I can't say that was my rational thinking. It was just that, y'all ever see the movie, I think, War Games? It's easily Googleable. War Games and then just W-O-P-R, Whopper. Yes, remind me, though, which one is War Games? Because I've seen a lot of movies with that. Uh, Let me Google it real quick. Matthew Broderick, I think. It's an older movie um, where he has... This kid hacks into NORAD's computer and has it plan a war, a nuclear war with uh, Russia, back and forth. And the way in which they beat it was they had the computer play tic-tac-toe. And it plays it faster and faster and faster and realizes, wait a second, I can't win. And that's what my brain was doing at the same speed. Running out different scenarios, they're beating it because of this. Nope, you're dead. And then switching to another one, it was fascinating. It's like I was standing off on one side looking at my brain and like, dude, why don't you do this all the time? And if you can think at this speed all the time, why don't you? So in a sense, I felt betrayed by my own brain as these guys are doing their thing. They dragged me out to the water, uh, pushed me under. They thought that I, I passed out at some point. Now, initially they thought that I was dead, and so they left me. I just floated up towards this, uh, the shore. They started walking away. One of them turned around to look back and saw that I was still alive. I'd sat up. And so when one saw that I was alive, he came back and started talking to me, the Florida state leader of the white Aryan resistance, and began to explain to me, as I'm saying, what happened, what happened, because I'm horribly confused and shock kicked in. What happened? He said, you just fell out of the back of so-and-so's truck. 
Like, no, you tried to kill me. He said, no, 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 no. And he was trying to feed me their alibi. And I couldn't participate. My brain was too damaged at that point to participate in their alibi system. So this guy, Richie, shouted out, F that mother F, and came running and kicked me on the right cheek so hard it lifted me from sitting to standing. And then they went at it again. But this time, two of them took me out in the water, one side on my back, and the other one held me in a chokehold, and they pushed my face down into the sand, and I was there until I inhaled the salt water. God damn. If you, if you, if you could, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you clearly in shock, but if you somehow would have had the wherewithal to be like, yes, I fell out of a truck, would, do you think they would have left you alone? Probably not. I'm yeah. glad they didn't. You're glad they didn't? Yeah. So you drown. They, they come back and they drown you. They, yes. they think they finished the job. It took two pulls of my diaphragm to fill my lungs fully with salt water. And then I was there and I could feel the tide go in and out and feel my lungs expand and deflate together with the tide, which is surreal. Um, they got up and when they left, they watched me and pushed me and watched me go out with the tide. The tide was going out. Um, I woke up above the shoreline. Their testimony in court was that I was a foot underwater with my eyes and mouth open out to the side, and they pushed me and watched me float out. And at that point, they felt safe to say that John's dead and they could leave. Holy shit. Indeed. Do you have any recollection of this happening? All of it. Perfect recollection. The whole thing? Yeah, for the most part. Other the drowning. The parts where I was being uh, yeah, knocked out, yeah. Now, I, I, do, you, do you remember where you, like, where you went during that time when you were underwater? Were you in your body? Were you feeling what was going on? Did you have some sort of a near-death experience? The way that I describe it is that I felt I could see myself being lowered into the grave, but I was looking up, looking out of the grave as I was being lowered in. And part of my thought, my thought process was, who's going to cry? Like, literally, who's going to care that you're dead? There's always going to be one or two girls that from school that cry over everything. They break their pencil, you know, pencil breaks and they start crying but who have you touched at this point i'm 17 it was two weeks after my 17th birthday um whose life have you touched what have you done that someone's actually going to care that you're gone your family will care but eventually you know people will stop coming to the gravesite. who's going to care and that's when my world went black and i died knowing that no one's going to give a shit you died you you i think I, you died no doubt yeah it went black? Everything went black. Yeah. Did you... F okay, so... So it wasn't like a near-death... Like when I went up to heaven... There was no classic near-death tunnel, light at the tunnel, feeling of warmth. My tunnel was... I was going into a grave and I washed it close. <laughs> I didn't feel anything warm about it. It was, uh, it was a very sad... But it definitely... It, it changed me. It made me who I am today. That... Every day in the back of your mind, who's going to cry? Who's going to care if you're here or if you're not? Inspires you to start trying to do things to make the world a better place. But you eventually wake up. Eventually I woke, come up, back or I woke up above the shoreline again. Um, do you know how much time went by? No, sir. No idea. No clue? No clue. Still night? Still dark? Uh, they started the beating a little after two. And this was probably three-ish, I guess, when the, the Volusia County Beach Patrol drove by and saw me sitting on the beach, thought I was drunk, and I almost got arrested for being <laughs> drunk. 
I was just so in shock, I had no way to communicate to them. And when I mentioned Ashkachapati, like God actually looking out, besides the fact I survived drowning, I never traveled with a pair, spare pair of glasses in my car. Naturally, you get beaten up pretty bad by a group of people, you lose your glasses. There was a spare pair in my car, a jacket in my car, because these guys stole my shirt. They, Why? Literally, they literally took my shirt off of my body. Why? I guess one of them liked it or didn't. I don't know, but they pulled it off. Did you have anything about you that would have outwardly identified you as a member of this gang at this point? Besides the white shoelaces? Yeah. Um, white shoelaces, bald head. Um, I mimicked everything they mimicked. I knew the words that they sang. Did, I went, did you have any tattoos? No, no tattoos. No tats. I wanted some, but no, I never got any. Because I realized I wouldn't be 16 for the rest of my life. And that was something I saw guys get arrested because of their tats. They were identified by their tats. Um, I went to a concert one time and the police lined us up against the wall looking for tattoos. Pull it on your, your lower lip to see if there was something on the inside. Because they also would write skins on the inside of their lower lip. So when you witness certain events like that or experience certain events like that, you're like, well, why do I want to get marked? Yeah. So no, I never got one. So, so you no. come to on the beach an hour later. Whenever later. Whenever, whenever the later. police were uh, get up, get off the beach. Uh, and when I fell across the hood of their vehicle, they were made them less than thrilled. So when they got me off the beach, uh, I managed to find my way back to my car, which took a little bit of time to kind of navigate between two of these different little areas. We parked at a hotel, was to work for my area where the boardwalk used to be to where this hotel was so I could actually find my car. And when I got in, I just sat there with the heater running and just drank an extra gallon of water that I had in the vehicle, put the jacket on, excuse me, put the glasses on, drove down the block, got uh, like a super big gulp at a 7-Eleven and just drove the rest of the way home. Stopped along the way to get gas. Drove home 80 miles. Yes, sir. After yep. you died and somehow came back to life. When I stopped and got gas, one, I had this horrible taste in my mouth. I bought a Jolly Rancher uh, apple-flavored piece of gum. Bazooka Gross. Joe. <laughs> so when I bought that um, and opened it up, there's always this little uh, saying inside. And it said, this is the most fortunate day of your life. Or something along those lines. I remember just thinking, this is just such BS. <laughs> and I wish I'd <laughs> saved it. Because really... <laughs> It's like, really, you know, Davka, Davka, of all days now, you're going to tell me this is the best day of your life? It's like, man, I'm not feeling the best. Eventually, I got home, took a shower, went to bed. Uh, my mother woke me up the next morning to go to work, and I rolled over, looked at her, and said, I don't think I'm going to work today. And she you look like, Did you look like shit? You look like you, you got the shit kicked out of you? Uh, yes. Yes. You're all swollen and like... From black, black eyes, what, what broken bones, what did you have? Oh, my face was definitely mangled. Yeah, my face was definitely mangled because of inhaling the salt water. I had aspirated pneumonia, so I breathed. It was very difficult for me to breathe. My whole body hurt. Most of the um, bruises were from ribs, one shoulder, all the way around in a circle to the other shoulder. Which is where they would have been kicking you. And they kicked me in the head, man. Yeah, they were kicking me in the head. That was their goal. They were trying to hurt me. Yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't just, you know, they weren't kicking my whole body. It wasn't like, I mean, I was kicked in the ribs and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, they were primarily focusing on my head. One of the, I had a perfect bruise imprint 
of the sole of one of their boots on my right uh, right arm. And you crawl home, crawl to bed? Showered first because I'm covered with sea sand. <laughs> but they don't know you're alive. No, I didn't you, know. You, this is your way out. If you want to. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Did you tell your mom at this point? At that point, no. Uh, this was shortly after the event in Central Park, which... Uh, They've since been clear that a group of black men were charged with uh, rape and... Oh, right. The, f- the Central Park Five. Correct. Uh, being on a wilding. That was their ex- uh, ex- excuse. We were just on a wilding. Then when my family asked me what happened, they brought me into the living room, and I'm sitting there trying to breathe. And my dad's there, and they wake my older brother up, and they're all three are interrogating me. So it was just a wilding. I've got no idea what happened. Um, because I wasn't going to rat out my friends. That's not what you do. <laughs> you, you, they literally just murdered you, and you're not going to rat them out? And you get that mindset. You get that mindset that just, I was locked in. Yeah. Not going to rat them out. I was going to take care of it either a different way or... How, what, in your mind, as a now 17-year-old, what did you think you were going to... How did you think you were going to take care of it? Um, possibly bring my weapon and meet up with them again. I had other friends I knew I could call that would care less if I was Jewish or not, that we could go and... So you, in in your head at the time, you're like, I'm going to get these guys. Part of my thinking was that, yes. At this, well, truthfully, at that moment, as I'm sitting in my parents' house at 17 years old, trying to catch my breath, understanding rationalism, lying to my parents, I'm not thinking of like an end game. My end game was just, how do I get my parents off my back so I can relax and go back to bed because I'm in pain? (laughs) That was more my thought and not get fired. It wasn't just, okay, I'm already plotting and planning what I'm going to do. Um, once I was taken to the hospital and they explained to my parents and I told a little bit about what had happened it was explained to my parents okay look if he's a victim of a crime the state pays for it otherwise you're on the hook for the bill and then I was like oh okay this is what happened so it was that that led more to me talking to my folks and explaining what happened and as I began to tell them what had actually transpired the medical teams and everybody else like, you're a liar. There's no way you could have survived driving home. You know, the tide was going out, and as each thing was listed, like, you shouldn't have survived this, you shouldn't have survived that. So the story can't be true. And then the guys started getting caught or turning themselves in. And then they were ratting on one another. So, uh, yeah. Did you or your family or the medical people involve the police? I mean, how, how did they start getting caught? I forget how the police eventually came to my room. Wait, I'm sorry. They came because the skinheads called me in my room in the hospital. Because they heard you were alive. Yeah. They'd found out that I was alive, and they called me in my room. I freaked out naturally. Um, fortunately, I had a friend there with me, and she freaked out even more. So she ran out looking for help, like, hey, these guys are on the phone with them right now. Uh, and that's when security came in, and I, let, I called my parents and reached out to them. And so I, they found me. What do I do? My parents called the ADL. The Anti-Defamation League then reached out. Not the police. Not the FBI. No. The ADL. I think they called directly the ADL, yeah. And the ADL said, okay, we'll be in touch. And man, (laughs) very shortly thereafter, I had SWAT guys in my room. And I was guarded around the clock until I left that hospital. Which is how long? It was at least another day or two. Yeah. It changed my whole perspective of law enforcement. Up to that point, they were the enemy. Because you thought they were infiltrated by white supremacists. Amongst other things, yeah. They're also just, 
these were the guys that if you're on the other side of the law, you don't look at the law enforcement as being friendly. Mm. You look at them as being the enemy. Um, so that's how I saw these guys. And it gave me a chance to actually talk to law enforcement as an equal. Why are some of you like this? Why do some of you do this? And they would give me real answers. You know, there are good and bad apples everywhere. Some of us are jerks. You might have a guy that was always a bully in high school that now it's his chance to bully somebody back. Or you've got some that really want to try and change the world and help, and those are the ones that get involved. Now, as I was in the hospital that week, I made a decision. I was going to prosecute. And not just prosecute, I was going to push it as a hate crime because that's what it was. Die, Jew boy, die. They tried to kill me because I'm Jewish, so I need to prosecute this. So so you're not saying, I'm going to get a gun and come after these guys. Now you're saying... First thought is make Aliyah go to Israel. But then I also have in the back of my mind. Yeah, you mind, had that in your mind at 17? Oh, yeah. I, I won't plan on making Aliyah beforehand, yeah. Israel, I was anti-Zionist in my house only because my parents were so pro-Zionist <laughs> that by them pushing it as a teenage male, you push back by saying, oh, you like it, so I don't. Um, we made Aliyah when we lived in Israel for 100 days actually remember the actual how many days in 1987 my family made oh, it, really as a kid yeah we were here for about three months we went back yeah where we lived in Agilo, just outside of jerusalem wow how why, why'd you go back why didn't it work it didn't work out for my parents the way they expected certain business op- job opportunities and things of that nature they didn't feel like uh were as open and as clear as they'd been led to believe so they chose to return to the states and start huh. over so you'd lived in israel as Correct. a 12-year-old, 13-year-old. 13-year-old, yeah. yeah. My 14th birthday was in uh, Gilo. Huh. Okay, so now you're in the hospital. You decide to prosecute. Yes. So as I explain out to law enforcement what had happened, what had transpired, what, who did what, how and when, um, once it was over, once, once I got out at the end of the week when I was released, I drove over to Daytona with my parents. My parents drove me to Daytona so I could give a statement to the beach rangers that were going to be handling the case. Once I finished giving them the entire story, uh, they told my parents, listen, he needs to go and hide, and don't tell us where, because we have to put it in our report. And if we put it in our report, I can't promise that uh, a sympathetic law, uh, law enforcement officer sympathetic to the racist movement won't see it and then pass on that information. So don't tell us. He just needs to go hide somewhere. So I took off and lived a few months in Virginia with some family. So there's no witness protection at this point? Nope. That was discussed later. But no, at that point, no. So they just said, go hide yourself. Good luck. Right? Local police had changed the, um, make sure your fire alarms have uh, new batteries in them. So they don't light your house on fire? Well, that way you'll get woken up from your fire detector when they, they do set when your house on fire. Tried. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, man, there wasn't like a... <laughs> That's a movie thing where we see on sitcoms, or not sitcoms, but like uh, Law and Order. Oh, you're going to testify? We'll take care of you. No. When I got to the Volusia County line to go someplace to uh, give a deposition or whatnot, I was picked up by an undercover police car, and then I was driven, and I was guarded the moment I was in the county. But when I was, the rest of the ride back home, which was two, three other counties away, no, it's all me. Wow. Man, it's quite a, it's quite a uh, what was uh, quite a set of events. I, yeah. I don't I don't really know how to, you know. Yeah, you're like sitting here in shock. Well, no, I, I, I yes, I am. I <laughs> yeah. don't I don't know how to even conceive of, of any of this. And there's a lot of stuff there that I could, you know. I, I'm I'm very interested, and Dan knows this overall. Like I I'm 
I'm very interested in what goes on in terms of like metaphysical things and, and the concept of an afterlife and what happens and the nature of reality and, and all these sorts of things. So the, the part of having died and you, know, you have a closer perspective on this than, than you know, the two of us in this room. Uh, and it's, it's fascinating to me that there's a window of your life that's, that's missing. There, there's that time that you were gone that you, don't, you can't account for your whereabouts, so to speak. You, know, you, were, you say it goes black, and, and I don't know if that's the same feeling of, of going to sleep or going black means like there's a hole missing from, of, of time between before and afterwards. But there's some, you know, you were somewhere, uh, and it's it's interesting to me to th- you know think about where you were, um, you know wh- where was your consciousness at that moment? Since you touched on that, I'll tell you another part that I don't always add. Uh, sure. I had a necklace that I wore at the time that belonged to my grandfather. My grandfather had passed a few months prior. Uh, when we got down to the sea, I took the necklace and held onto it. It's the only thing I had for my grandfather. What, what kind of necklace? It was just a pendant that he picked up when he was out west on the last old trip they made before he and my grandmother and one of my aunts before they... Uh, so this pendant that my grandfather had was just... Uh, I think it was a phoenix that he picked up out west. And I held it in my hand and said, Grandpa, if anybody is in heaven, it's you. I don't expect God to hear what I have to say. So please tell him, I'm sorry for what I've become. I'm sorry for who I'm involved with. I don't know how to get out. And please tell God I forgive him if he has to kill me. Tell him I forgive him. And I'm sorry. And that's when it happened. So, that's true. I know that necklace, I mean, it was broken that night. No idea where it is. So someone, some tourist coming through Daytona is going to find that necklace and be like, I wonder what this piece of hunk of, yeah. metal, hunk of metal is and throw it back out to sea. And what? Wh- I've asked this multiple times because it's just something that I've been personally curious about is your psychological transformation throughout the whole process that you're with this group. And at every time you said you did not believe what they were saying for a second as far as certainly the anti-Semitism or the, or the racism, like you did not become a racist. You were pretending i was prejudiced not racist sure okay um, that, that, that would be my answer when i was asked i would say i'm prejudiced not racist because they would refer to me as a racist and i'd say i'm not racist i'm prejudiced i selectively hate and for them that was something that that's one of the things that made the officers like me even more the national level guys because i didn't just go with everything that was said i would think before i would respond what did you Sorry. feel that you had to be sorry for because it sounds to me, and this is something that we were discussing between us before we talked to you and even after we saw the movie, but before we spoke to you is, is did at any point you felt like you were convinced, did they turn you at any point or, or, and you said the whole time you were pretending until you could get out of there. So what did you feel you had to be sorry for? The fact that I was involved with them, man, that I had nowhere to go, that I'd done some of the things, I'd said the things they'd said, that uh, I dressed the way they dressed, that I'd scared people like that. You can't go someplace dressed up like that and walk into a room and not scare the... I'm trying not to be Benny and you know, drop the no, dude, bomb, be Ben. Be, drop, yeah, drop what drop you're and, you know, Scare the shit out of people. I'm you know, really trying to avoid that. Um, that's not something that you, my average person wants to be like. 
there is a point, I think, for a young male's life that he would he enjoys that type of reaction when he walks into him. But you also realize as a human, the impact you're having on other people. And seeing fear in people's eyes was not something that, uh, it's not healthy. Did you enjoy it? There were periods, yes, I did. Because I know what it's like to look at people with fear in my eyes. Is this a realization that you came to later as you matured, or were you realizing it in real time? Gum for gum. Both. Both. So you go through the trial. These guys go to jail. And as... Hold on. Was it, were you, did you have to be in the, in the same room with them during the trial? And initially, I went to the depositions where their lawyers were hitting me with a thousand different questions. And so when that was happening, most of their lawyers were like, hey, we're not going to go against this guy on the stand. No way. Because everyone was telling a different story. Everyone was trying to blame somebody else. Everyone was trying to say they were innocent, but the other guy was throwing the kicks. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you saw all these legs flying, but mine was not one of them. Um, and so, no, they didn't want to put me on the stand against those guys. Uh, so two of them pled out to attempted murder. One took off and ran. The guy with the uh, white Aryan resistance, he took off. And would contact law enforcement from time to time and say, you know, I turned myself in, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what you're going to do to me. Because he thought they were going to pay him back. Mm-hmm. Um, Remember the show in the States, uh, America's Most Wanted? Sure. They were already down uh, location scouting because they wanted to do and put him, make him one of the things. But that's when they eventually caught him, I think up in Philadelphia, with a boatload of weapons. Um, Not a boatload, that's kind of sarcastic. Carload. A lot of guns. Because it was his house also in Daytona. Mm -hmm. A lot of guns. So I guess he took them up there with him. But anyway, he was up in Philadelphia and he was... Heavily armored, um, and uh, he was brought back down, extradited down to Florida so that we were able to do hold a trial against him. There was one guy that uh, we went to court. His lawyer wanted to fight it on the free speech grounds because it, all the court cases were tried under the Hate Crimes Act in the state of Florida, um, which it raised the uh, level of punishment one level up for each one, whatever it would have been on and I don't know legal, enough legal legalese to explain it's like this, it's like that, but it makes whatever you've been hit with a little bit stronger. Mm-hmm. And um, his lawyer was pushing it as a free speech issue that had nothing to do, that he had the right to express his rage or anger or statement, whatever you did against me, he had the right. Um, and they tried to play that out. He lost and made it to the Florida State Supreme Court. They lost there as well. So uh, that's one for... Uh, Hate Crimes Act in the state of Florida. You know, my name's with it, which is, I'm kind of honored by that. Cool. But um, where are you living or hiding or what are you doing during this whole trial period? Because now everyone knows who you are. My parents had a small business where they did uh, touch up work on used car lots. I tended to work with them, so I would travel around a lot. We would work on uh, the tri state area, uh, Florida, Georgia, and I think they crossed in Alabama a little bit, but we worked just like in this little region. And sometimes I get a heads up, hey, there's some skin that's going to be in the area, and I would take off. Was, Just, it, was it nice to reconnect with your parents? It was nice spending time with them, definitely, and getting to know them, and them getting to know me as I began to grow up more and more. Um, it took me some time before I really started connecting with them. For the first year after the attack, it was really just trying to get John back in shape with John, get my mind right again. So I was really focused on just trying to get myself back together. Since they tried to drown me, I was afraid to take a shower. Anything regarding water, I'd freak out. If I smelled water, I'd freak out. If you, I smelled salt water, that was into me. 
Give me away. From, why, why are we here? Give me away from here. This is not a good, this is not bringing oh. back good memories. Does it linger to till, until today? To an extent. You to should, an extent. You shouldn't have moved to Ashkelon. <laughs> so you moved to a nice beach town. <laughs> You're welcome to Rehovot, where we have no beaches. When I made Aliyah and came to Ashkelon, I remember going down to the sea one night and just sitting and looking at the sea and saying, I won. Mm. I won. I'm still here. I'm still here. It's a different sea. Yeah. So how did you make Aliyah, how did it, and how did you get to Ashkelon? I pushed through all the court cases, um, and it took about seven years once we got everything done. We did Seven years? Rega, one second. First, we had the criminal, which put people away, and then we did a little um, civilian where they were, uh, two were, two of my friends, okay, they were seven altogether. They were, ugh, could walk through step by step, every single person who did what. There was one guy that turned evidence, state's evidence, he wasn't charged. He, on the condition he leave the state, and he did. Two attempted murder. Those guys both got 10 years. Two for assault and battery. Each one got a year. Heather, the girl that set it up, she was given two years of community control, and then two guys that came with me from Ocala who opted to not tell me what was going to transpire that night because they were afraid it would happen to them. They were told it would happen to them. They were hit with the civil suit, uh, thanks to the ADL with the lawyer that they had. Um, a very small civil suit, basically just an annoyance suit. So during that period, I'm working from one to another, and once that's done, now I'm, I got involved in the martial arts, I got involved in skydiving, skydiving, scuba diving, anything that scared me I got involved with to try and learn how to beat fear and also how to deal with these guys. There wasn't a moment I left my house that I was unarmed, ever. I always had a weapon on me, always, at least one. Firearm or what are you talking about? Knife, gun. And you had learned martial arts? Learning, yes. Learning and instructing, yeah. You go to school? Sir? You were going to school? I graduated, yeah. University? Oh, no. I was told by the head of uh, intelligence for the Florida State Department of Law, Florida Department of Law Enforcement, you can't go to college. There's no place you can live for four years and be safe in America. You can't go to college. So what, are you, what are you doing this whole time? For work, for whatever. Again, small business. Work with them. Work with them. Which provided me flexibility to travel on and whatnot. But that, that statement of the officer of the Florida Department of Law Enforcement is Chief kind of... Chief of Intelligence. Chief of Intelligence, even. is, 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 is that's, that's kind of the message, right, as to why you kind of have to leave America. Yeah. There's, there's nowhere in America that you can settle down. I mean, even if the case... Indeed is done and these people go away he still gets out in 10 years this guy the other guy's getting out in a year the organization has thousands of members nationwide your story is now known it's probably in the news you got to go oh it was definitely in the news the message was relayed to me that uh at one point you're safe until the last guy gets out of prison then we're gonna finish the job now, over the years, as I'd buy firearms, I would call, they had these hate numbers, a hate line, which was basically just a number that went into an answering machine. The answering machine would play like a hate message. It might be Tom Metzger, one of the heads of, the founder of the White Aryan Resistance, or there's some other racist, angry message, and then saying, okay, leave your name and number, and we'll be back in touch with you. It was a way to recruit. That I would call and say, oh, I bought a new AK-47 this weekend. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing y'all. This is John, by the way. Are you living your life? You're now in your early 20s, mid 20s? Late teens, early 20s, yeah. Armed, constantly looking around, all over your shoulder for some white supremacist to, to try to kill you? Yeah. Like this is your life? Yeah. No matter where you go in America? Yeah. But I stayed in Ocala. 
are your parents armed? Are your siblings armed? Are, are people around you also like expecting revenge for, for, for this? I send a message up the pipeline. Listen, I used to be one of y'all. If anything happens to my family, we all have family. We all have family. And I made sure that they understood we all have family. And uh, my brothers were fine. They would talk about coming back from clubs, being approached by a group of skinheads. And, Are you John Daly's brother? Yep. You tell them we're going to finish the job. But they wouldn't touch my brothers. They would just inform them to pass along the message to me that they were going to do something to me. Are they also expecting, are they ready to throw down if they need to? Are they ready to defend themselves if they need to? I think they were more interested in just having a good time and enjoying their youth. I was the one that had to grow up real fast. <laughs> they were able to take their time with it. When I was do on the you, fast when, track. When do you make Aliyah? I made Aliyah when I got a message from the Department of uh, Corrections that the last guy was about to get out of jail. At that which point I reached out to the Jewish agency and said, I need to go home now. And met up with them and laid out my case and said, look, I need to go. Uh, the first place that had an opening was Jerusalem, which is what I requested. I'm sorry, the second, the last place would have been Jerusalem. The first place was Ashkelon. And the goal was to get out of America right. and come home. And I was, Ashkelon, what? Okay, I'll go. Been here ever since. Here's my home. How long did the whole process take? To make Aliyah? Yeah. Um, I think it wound up taking four months. I mean, we, we both did it. it. We, both, we both made Aliyah from Washington mm-hmm. out of the same Jewish agency oh. office at the time. Um, I think, yeah, I don't know how long it took until we approached them, until we had the tickets and everything. We talked about pre-Google days. Yes. P- people who haven't been to Israel, who've only been to Israel recently. Do you remember that? The you old smoke on the flight. Days. The old Terminal yeah. 1, the smoke on the flight, no TV. I remember showing up at that airport. First off, you mentioned Washington and the Shaliach in Washington, Yair Kalush was, the, was his name. If you're listening, Yair, I didn't rent your apartment from you. I'm sorry. This guy tried to set us up. I think it was like a it was like a racket he was doing out of his office. Like every person that was like an Oled that was coming to Israel, he would try to say, he would try to like lease them his his apartment. He'd be like, "You're going to need a place to live. I have a apartment in Ramat Gan, close to Tel Aviv. Yes, <laughs> uh, make you very good good deal, and uh, you will uh, live there. Yes." All I remember is he had a mustache, big mustache. And that his wife was working on like the Human Genome Project. I didn't know that. That's all I remember. But I remember showing up at Ben Gurion Airport, and there was a guy that sh- they send you to the. Um, there was like a, an office of the Misrad Aliyah Klita. We had someone meet us. Did you have someone meet you at the gate? Somebody met did me. You, did you it, someone meet you? Do you remember? Yeah, the guy that met me was like he had a list, and apparently where a lot of people were coming that night. Mm. He's like, "You okay?" I'm like, "Yeah." So he was, that was it. That was like he had welcome. no idea who you were. That yeah. was my welcome to Israel thing. <laughs> okay. um, no, we remember they give you the, the envelope of cash, the salkita yeah, yeah, yeah. at the airport. Really? That? What? This is later. When, years. We, when we came, we got. Did they you get cash? You that, I, I got don't cash. Know if I got cash. No, I got cash. They sat me down in a room. It was like a waiting room, looked like a doctor's waiting room, sort of a thing. Then I went into an office. He gave me my tudat ole, my my ole ID card, and he gave me an envelope with two thousand shekels cash in it, which was my first installment of the. Uh, immigration benefit package basket salklita, and um, and then they gave me a cab ride to anywhere I wanted to go. So I had my and uncle. I had my I, uncle. I, I was in Ulpan and Yerushalayim, yeah. so we went to Ulpan. I have family here, so they they picked us up from the airport. What was your feeling? This was this was in the days when you had to physically step off the plane, come downstairs, and you, you 
touch the ground. And they still do this with Oleum, I noticed, I think, for the symbolic value of this. I do it for the photo op, man. No, no, I'm saying. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> not doing it for the Ole's benefit. You know they what? a nice photo. It might be both. But, but you know, if you come on a regular plane, you just walk through the sleeve. But but when we came, first of all, they, they didn't yet have this new terminal. And you land and you come, you walk physically to the ground. What was your first thought, your first feeling when you stepped on Israeli soil? Most likely, probably fresh air. <laughs> <laughs> After everyone's smoking. On the plane. I, I was sitting in the smoking section of the flight. In the back. With all the Israelis that were smoking nonstop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I and think on that flight, it was probably like there was the no smoking section. Yeah, by the time we landed, I was just like, I need air. I really just need air. <laughs> I, I remember those flights. I had a friend that was going to pick me up at the airport. Uh, she was going to drive me down to Ashkelon. So I was already taken care of on that aspect. So I didn't have to deal with anybody from the Jewish agency. It was a representative AACI, uh, Association of Americans, Canadians, and Israel that approached me, um, just a volunteer. All the stuff dealing with Aliyah and Klita, I had to take care of once I got Dashkan and with my, Merkaz uh, Klita, with my absorption center. And Were you with your parents? At this Sir? Were your parents with you? Well, my parents stayed in the States. So, but I noticed that in the, in the movie, your mom lives in Ashkelon. So she'd come later? The year after I made Aliyah, my mom's twin sister made Aliyah, moved to Jerusalem. So, okay, so you, so your mom's twin sister made she Aliyah. Made Al- she made Aliyah before. The year after me. The year after you. Um, my mother, my father passed in 2008. I brought him here to Ashkelon where he's buried today. My mother made Aliyah the following year, 2009. Wow. And your Still brothers here? are all in the States? All in the States. It's, it's, it, first off, I think it's great that she came. Um, speaking from someone who's, whose parents don't live here, and there's that big distance. And you as well, Dan, your parents don't live here. It's, it's, it's not always easy. It was um, rough, yeah. I'm sure it was very nice for you to have your mom. You know, and, and it, it, it definitely probably, uh, well, you can tell me, did it, did it feel a lot more like home once she was here? My mom jokes around that uh, when she first met Alia, she had to set an appointment to see me. I was literally so involved in so many different uh, not-for-profits, um, ran for Knesset that same year. I mean, there were a lot of different things going on. I was the head of one not-for-profit. I was involved in another one, volunteering for yet another. So like different things, I was off in different sections. So she knew I was always involved. I really tried to do what I could. My life was spared for a reason. And I've tried to do everything I can to give back. And especially in the country I live in now, I've tried to volunteer since the moment I landed. What can I do to help? Where can I assist? And I try and do that as much as I can globally. What can I do to try and help our people? Because I feel like this is not something that's uh, going to go away. Uh, and as we were talking on the way in, Dan, I feel like um, I'm always messing up with my mic. It's all good. It seems like if it's at one angle, I hear myself better, and that's why I adjust a little bit so I hear I, me. I can hear him better this way, no? Or do you know? Yeah. Okay. It's all good. Different. And he's like, I don't care. I'm not even listening. <laughs> <laughs> he's thinking about lunch. <laughs> You want a snack? <laughs> I've got a snack if you want. For one. our listeners, Dan always chides me on the. Uh, I'm thinking about, about lunch. I'm working out. This is no, nutrition. I'm, th- I'm not about. I that. actually wasn't thinking of lunch. I was, I was thinking about. Okay, I was thinking about lunch. <laughs> Come on, no, I'm joking. I, which I was thinking about asking you which organizations were you working with at the time. And what kind of lunch did they serve? <laughs> 
English Speakers of Ashkelon was one that I was the chair at the time that I helped start it. Mm-hmm. Um, together with, the, there were some other members that were phenomenal that they did all the legwork behind me. I was just asked to be the face because I didn't mind doing public speaking. Um, when I was in college, I was involved with, I was the vice president of the student council, Ashkelon Academic College, which wasn't a bad achievement for someone who had only been in the land for a few years. Um, did you manage to learn Hebrew in this short time? Yeah. The Ulpan, or did you know Hebrew from the time you lived here before? When I landed, I didn't know even how to say hello. Really? Well, I'm being a little facetious. Sure, know. sure, sure. No, I didn't know Hebrew at all when I got here. Mm. But I started pushing. Unfortunately, the Ulpan that I got into was for academics. So they were doing a massive mind dump of 50 words per day of Hebrew. That's intense. It was. Yeah. It was, yeah. And they, they were teaching us how to be college students because that's where they were driving all of us. So I did one period with the Olpan, and from the Olpan, after that, we went into uh, an academic program, which raised the level of, Hebrew, level of Hebrew even higher. So when I started college, 13 months after I made Aliyah, so I made Aliyah in the beginning of September of 1997, You're the following year, I was in college. 97, so you are 24? 23 when I got here, 24 a few weeks later, yeah. It was right on the cusp. What did you, you study in college? My undergrad was sociology and political science with a double minor in uh, Judaic studies because I studied at Bar-Ilan. At Bar-Ilan, not at Ashkelon. I studied at Ashkelon, which at the time was a shlucha, which was, a, was, was a branch got of Bar-Ilan. It. Got it, got it, got it. So my final year, I had to do some classes up in Bar-Ilan and some classes here in Ashkelon. Wow. Were you able to manage um, the lectures in Hebrew? Like, yeah. It was my choice. Not manage. <laughs> I would write down, I would trans, okay, I, would, I had several different techniques. Sometimes I would just sit there and write letters to my friends back in America. That way it looked like I was taking notes when I had no clue what was going on around me. And that way it, I seemed like I was involved in the class. And I would just send these letters back to my buddies in the States or my family or whatnot. Um, or if they would use a word that they didn't understand, I would write that word down, what it sounded like. And then I would have to research it later so I could add it to my own lexicon so I could begin to learn what they were talking about. And also I realized that there's nothing these guys are teaching that it's ex- exclusive to where I'm at. There's probably some other university someplace teaching this exact same thing and your language. Mm. There's Google now. Go look. And that's really what I did. Do you stay in touch with anybody from the States? Sure. From that period? Not so much from that period. I mean, some friends from high school from time to time, but no one that, like, sometimes I'm asked, am I in touch with the guys that tried to kill me or what? No, like, no, no, no not, not like that. Well, that is interesting, but it's, it's I wouldn't expect you to be in touch with <laughs> Some people do. Did, uh, did any of those guys, I'm assuming from the answer to that question, that none of them tried to reach out to you and apologize, but did any of them try to turn their lives around, the, the guys involved in your murder? Uh, don't know. Don't think so. I know one was listed by the Southern Poverty Law Center as one of the ten most terrifying racists in the United States a few years ago. That's an achievement. That's something. That is something. We should send him uh, congratulatory. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say some Jew on swag. Yeah. So when I talk about <laughs> looking over my guy. shoulder, this isn't something that just went away. Uh, the I am in touch with one person from back then, and that's uh, Kevin Connell. He was uh, also in the film together with sure. one of my best friends really at the time when I was in the Skins. But now he's totally turned his life around and will be, this will be airing tomorrow. And there's another event we'll be doing for the United States. For my time, it'll be 
six o'clock in the morning when we get started yeah. with him, the director, and how, how what was he involved in? Um, he, he features prominently in the movie, um, also that that he does really try to turn his life around, and you two go on a really emotional trip together to um, um, Czech Republic and Poland to the Czech Republic and Poland to to the concentration camps and to Auschwitz to the death camp, and um, it's 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 really powerful um, to see that. And it, it seems like he did. Too. What was his involvement? It was uh, powerful to live it. What's that? It was powerful to live it. I, I'm sure uh, the 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 emotions and the. Have you been, Dan? I have not. Um, I've not. I do not want to. I am. I am terrified of the emotions, and I. I don't want to. I, I flat out don't want to. I. I. Om- I was supposed to go in the army in uniform, and then I did want to. Not. You know, it's not an experience you want, but I wanted to do it in uniform. And then for some reason, they, they passed me over that year, and then it just never came back again. Um, I've actually had the opportunity to go several times. Uh, one with a organization that I was with at the time that was bringing trips of, uh, of college students to Poland. Uh, and the other time, um, it was on a work trip, actually, that we were sent to try to find a local tour company that would be able to work with us, but I was with somebody who was from Israel, he went from Israel, who had never been. Mm. And so he wanted to go there, and I said that I would go go with him. Uh, that was in Poland. Uh, and it's it's a, I mean, pick yeah. pick pick your superlative word here, how you want to describe the experience. It's yeah. all true. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, uh, Look, going to Yad Vashem it hits me very hard. Um, it's not even the same ballpark. I, 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 that's what the, the, yeah. my point is. Is going to Yad Vashem hits me so hard I can't imagine while going to the actual camps how hard that would hit me. Um, I, inter- uh, I internalize history. I think in that, general. I think and, that the most interesting know. thing for me, uh, as as somebody who grows up in the states with the narrative of the Holocaust and who lives in Israel with the presence of the Holocaust, is that. You think about it as as an event that took place in the past that we must learn from and protect ourselves against and never again and, and the narrative of never again and all of that. And then you go there and you realize that there are people that are not Jewish that just live there. Like for them it's, and, and that to me was always the strangest part it's about it. Is it. It's not messed up. You, it's not like they turn these areas into pres- you know national parks and nature preserves. It's like there's a city that like you live here and across the street is the fence of Auschwitz death camp. Like it's, you, you can yeah. be in yeah. uh, Lublin in Poland and in the middle of the city is the Medana concentration camp and it's all there preserved. And, and there are people that for them, you know, non-Jewish people that are living in these towns and if it's Poland, it's Catholic people that are just, living in these towns. Just a place. Yeah. Just, yeah. just it's, a place. It's just a place. It's a something in their history. Many of them are, are quite frankly probably sick of it being a part of their history that they always have to see tour groups coming sure. into view and, you know, you know, we could talk about that or not, but it's, it's, it's it's the it's the dichotomy of seeing something that is so central to the story of our people that in another place is just part of their scenery at this time. Well, uh, I mean, I'd be curious to hear your what were your emotions going there? Um, how did it hit you? Did it hit you as like, holy shit, I'm a Jew. This is where my people were murdered. Was there any kind of even a slight bit of remorse at having been involved even against your will with such an organization and then being at these places? Well, how did it hit you? How did you digest your experience there? 
it was a group of us. There was Kevin, who was there as the repentant ex-skinhead. There was John, who was there as a survivor. I never use the word victim, survivor. Um, survivor of, of the, con- the camps? No, survivor being uh, the skinhead violence. Oh, a violence. Yes, okay. I don't ever refer to being a victim of anything. I'm, I've survived a lot of things in my life, God bless, but I'm a victim of none of it. Um, there was one woman who was a producer. She was there. It was her time first, first time visiting a camp. And there was a cameraman that was there, an Israeli, that he'd been to camps before, that his grandfather was actually in the band when people would arrive. The, the show band. The, Correct. Uh, the Correct. fake band that made it seem like everything was okay. And this cameraman was walking around with this blue ball all day long, this racquetball. And at the end of the day, I asked him, what's that for? And he said, that's so when I, I, I'm ready to cry, I squeeze uh. this. Because he was thinking about his family while at the same time trying to film this story. And the director, it's gotta be hard. That uh, European. So we stopped on the way in. That I had a seizure in the parking lot just from shoot from all the emotions. Um, as we began to cross in, I held on to the director, and we all helped each other get in. As people watch the documentary, they'll notice the camp in Poland, uh, Terezin. I'm carrying a backpack all day. When we get into Auschwitz, Kevin carried the backpack all day because he would not let a Jew work. Kevin also refused to eat while he was in Auschwitz. He refused to drink, because if they weren't allowed, he wasn't allowed. So he set these really strong ideals on himself while he was there to show that he was with us. It was, yeah, words can't express. As you're walking through, realizing what you're doing. With a repentant skinhead. Correct. The two of us together on a path together, and me knowing that this story, if it's done right, could change lives because this is a story when I first reached out to the director Daniel it's like listen man I'm going to give you the opportunity to film this if you choose not to then I'm going to reach out to uh, some kind of Israeli uh, news or something like that to see who wants to do what with it but I feel like this is something that should be covered he agreed and became part of a film I, I was mentioning to I, we watched the movie two nights ago mm-hmm. um, with Benny and with my wife um, who last year took her high school students to, to visit the camps in Poland and had a, a profound experience. Um, and at the part of the movie where they show you guys walking around the camps, there's like, I don't even know how to explain it, like a photo, a shocking photo montage of like the most graphic Holocaust imagery you can find on film. And I said to myself, I was like, I, I didn't need to see that. I don't think I needed to see that to get the story, but but now I'm thinking maybe the director put it in there because part of your m- message and mission with the movie is to shock people out of complacency, their, complacency, or maybe their even their extremism, or maybe their racism, or what they have. Is that correct? In oh, the director, you have to ask the director <laughs> what was in his mind. For us, <coughs> one of the things that he did was he wanted us to talk like we really did back in the day. He wanted us to talk all the swearing and whatnot that we did. So that was literally the way that we spoke during filming. Now, the first time I saw this movie screened, and there I am watching myself swearing like a sailor (laughs) whose ship is sinking, I'm thinking, man, you got to bleep this out. This is horrible. The next place I spoke at had already bleeped. They'd hired somebody to bleep out all the, the bad spots. And another place we met up and spoke at, this time with the director, they also agreed there was a little bit too much swearing. I said, would you please send an email to the director and let him know that? And then he re-edited it, cut that out. And I think that's what, he wanted something that would throw all this emotion at you. And he did a fantastic and job. Did. <clears throat> and it did. The ending, I think if um, 
the swearing was all the way through, it would have taken away from the film, but I think that was partly to show these were how extreme these guys were. And then in the film with the showing how extreme, what extremism can do. What does Kevin do now? Kevin's also in disability at the moment. He's got multiple sclerosis. Is he in Florida? No, he's somewhere out in the Midwest. Okay. Wow. So, um, I don't think you keep, uh, we, we've been speaking on air for over two hours, and we never once mentioned that uh, you are battling brain cancer. Indeed. When did you learn about this? How did you learn about this? I learned about it when uh, I had a grand mal seizure, Simchat Torah, and uh, I was taken to the emergency room here in Ashkelon. Fortunately, I wasn't carrying the Torah at the time. I'd already passed it off. Yeah, that everyone had to fast. Right? <laughs> exactly. Um, was taken to the emergency room here in Ashkelon, and all I was told was, Yesh baya, there's a problem. No one had the guts to tell me what the problem was. And I'm like, yeah, I'm in the ER. I know there's a problem. What is the problem? I was put in another ambulance and sent to Soroka in Beersheba. A, a bigger hospital for those listening. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and while I was there, um, the doctor on duty said, do you know why you're here? And I said, no. He said, you've got a brain tumor. After he, he started cursing the other doctor that didn't have the guts to tell me that it had to fall on his shoulder. How old are you? I was 36. So you, you've been here for over 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you're teaching, you're volunteering, you're lecturing, you're a student. In the midst of my master's, yeah. And, and you did master's where? Also Barla? I did my master's at Sapir College. Public Sapir College, which is uh, south of here in Sderot. Sderot, yes. Um, working, living full life. You ran for Knesset, you mentioned. Correct. With what party? I ran for a group called the Yisraelim, the Israelis. That really what we were trying to do was get proportional uh, representation in the state of Israel. That if you that you would have your member of Knesset from your area, someone you could turn to. That what now, I was talking about with Rosner. That, that's exactly I was gonna I was gonna connect that because that's exactly what you were saying is missing here. Absolutely every, missing. Every party's for it until it's time for elections. When they're in the Knesset, they're like, "Oh, this is great. We need to change the law." However, they never do, and they've talked about it since the foundation of the state. And it was something that we were out there trying to talk to people and saying, look, you need someone that you can turn to in the government that can help you if you have an issue. And uh, sadly, we just vote by, um, by, by party. And w- like we see, everyone's stuck with their party, and they mm. keep voting the same way again and again and again, and we'll see if we had to fit uh, elections. And everyone that, votes the same the, way again. What's that <laughs> saying? If you do something... Uh, Insan- wh- insanity is uh, when you keep doing the same thing, expecting different results. Yeah. Here we are. We're a crazy country, crazy right. politics. Who, who else was involved in that party? Any names that we'd recognize today in politics? Today in politics? Um, I don't remember the name of the professor. Uh, professor Guidon, I forget his name. God bless. Um, sorry, I've been a few surgeries and a lot of medications yeah, yeah. in between the years. So it was like we ran, we lost, and it was like, all right, thanks. That was cool. Um, I had hoped to do more with the government, but uh, yeah. that's when the tumor hit? Brain cancer had plans, yeah. So you've had uh, multiple surgeries. I've had two awake brain surgeries, correct. Yeah, I I don't even want to get into that because we don't have that much time, and it's graphic. Um, For those of you who are interested, can email you. uh, Yeah, go online and look up uh, awake surgery and have a good time. uh, Awake brain surgery. I think think we both cringed like... When we saw that in the movie, uh, when you talked about it, I wasn't smiling when they asked me. When they told me, I wasn't like, "I can't wait to do." Yeah, this. you're like part of this unfortunate. St- you're like a statistic of people that are like one percent. Yeah, the yeah. anesthesia doesn't really do its job. One percent. Yeah, fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
that was surgery number one. Surgery number two, I just that was my request. I was like, look, I just don't want to feel it again. <laughs> I didn't. Do you? And where where do you, where do you where are you now in this in the journey of battling brain cancer? Ask me next week. Uh, on but Sunday, I get an MRI. On Monday, I talk to my oncologist, and they're looking at possibly doing a third surgery. This one to stop uh, to help fight epilepsy. However, there's uh, some opportunities in Europe that I'm thinking I would much rather get back to work and do what I like to do, and that's work for us. And yeah. I want to go to places where there's anti-Semitism, that's, there's an interest in me speaking. And if I can work together with youth and other groups and uh, do things that... Uh, so that my plan is just to, I'll talk to them and look at possibly postponing or see what they have to say. So talk to me next week and I'll give you more. Okay. Well, we obviously wish you... The best of success oh and luck God. with that. Yeah. Um, part, part of the reason God's will. why we we did it this week, and I think the, that it timed up with Holocaust Remembrance Day, was more of a byproduct um, than, than it was that you were going to get another examination. And we just, you said, we, sh- we should probably do this now. Um, yeah, if they're going to cut, I can't promise. I don't know who's going to be on the other side. Yeah. <laughs> do you... That's crazy. That's that's such a. You've been through this a couple of times, but it's probably never easy to face uncertainties. My first surgery that I felt part of the one percent. The second one, I asked one of the doctors. I said, "Did you learn anything?" And he said, "Your worst case, your worst case scenario is our best case scenario because we're able to learn." So I looked at him and said, "So what you're telling me is what I went through helped somebody else?" And he said, "Yes." So how was it bad? Someone didn't suffer. Because I did. How was that bad? It's the whole same thing with like uh, me coming out and speaking against these groups and always traveling or always being willing to travel. Regardless of any of the circumstances or repercussions that might come about. Because if you can, you have to. Do you, do you feel like your whole mission now, your whole life is one mission? And, and that's who you are now? Because of what you did, because of what you went through, because... You were, it seems like you were given your life a second chance at life or even now a third chance at life. I, I don't even know how you look at it. I've stopped counting how many chances. <laughs> um, for me, I'm just grateful that I'm alive every day when I wake up and throughout the day. I'm always repetitively thankful to Kurosh uh, Baruch that I'm, I'm alive. And what I try and do is put back into the world what I wasn't at that time. I'm trying to make up for the, uh, the evil that I was putting out, either by voice or by action. That now what I try and do, no, no one wants to spend all their life talking about when they were 16 years old. Sure. At some point you're like, you know, I've done other stuff, but I'm always billed as this is what this guy did at 16. And when I show up, people think they're arguing like I'm the 16 year old. Like that dude, that was a long time ago. And I've grown since then. And there's a lot of other things that have happened that sometimes I'd rather focus on writing yeah. a policy paper that was pushed as two different laws in the state of Israel. By unfortunately. What? Um, linguistic accessibility. Every building in the state of Israel says that it has to be accessible for you if you're a disabled. However, as much as we try and pull immigration to the state of Israel, it does not say anywhere that that, that building has to be understandable to you. So you could have an immigrant, they'd arrive here on a plane in a, in a wheelchair, be taken to the office of Adian uh, Klita, Ministry of Absorption, go in, and nothing says it, it says that you should be able to get into the building. But nothing says that he should understand what's in the building. And that's what I was pushing. In certain areas that it, you should have access. So I'm very proud that 
like medically, we've raised the, uh, the understanding that any medical treatment that you're going to have done to you should be accessible to you in your language if you're going to sign a consent form. And that's something you help push through. It's one of the things that we help get out there. Yeah. That's amazing. It was awesome. It was fun to be a part of. That's amazing. I, you know, I think you and I talked about this, and I think Benny and I talked about this, in that, yeah, you've lived an entire life since the seven months that defined a big chunk of your life. Um, and we didn't want to get up. We, we wanted to have a whole different conversation about what you've done since then, because you, you know, um, but it was just such a fascinating exploration of, you know, uh, the event itself, but your psychology as you grow and how you process it now versus how you were processing it then. And I think it's just such a window into something crazy and entirely different um we have i want to take a few minutes before we we need to wrap up um and talk about you know we, we mentioned at the beginning the state of um white supremacy extremism racism in america today mm-hmm. is that something you're still following is that something you're still learning and researching and trying to understand and educate against yes oh yes how how does it look today? How does it look today? Um, horrifying. He's showing me, for those of you who are listening, this is a telegram. Yes, telegram. And these are what I'm assuming are white supremacist groups. They're white supremacist extremist groups, yes. That you are Channels a part of? That I've managed to find and join. Yes. You Including the one that says Ashkelon Superfarm? Oh, that's... Uh, <laughs> so I'm, that's something else. It's I'm just looking... Uh, yeah, maybe uh, not read the names off. If you have any questions, I, I'm not going to re- explain. I'm not, I'm not going to read the name off. Um, I'm a, so we're not going to show this to the camera. That's entirely up to y'all. I, when I read something, if I find something in there, if I take a screen grab of it, yeah. I'll save it on my computer. And if I share it to somebody or if I post it on uh, a website or whatnot, then I will try and black everything out because I'm not trying to give these guys press. Same thing if I talk about an extremist that's committed an, an act of violence, I'll refer to the act of violence, but I don't refer to them by name or try not to. These guys, it's a big narrative through, um, uh, through the elections that why is it that white supremacist shooters are caught alive? Because they want to be. When they're caught, they go to prison and they become what's called a saint. And they become these guys' heroes and they start writing to them and reaching out to them. So for them... These guys are really, really important. There's one that's just memes that I go into just for memes because I look for uh, to see how long it takes before a white supremacist meme is able to be pushed over into the, uh, the mainstream narrative. And what are you seeing? It's becoming easier and easier because they just focus on the same stuff you see on Fox News or CNN. They just focus on the things that people are afraid of, mass immigration or job loss or corona. Corona's been... It's been fantastic for their whole recruiting method because you've got extremists, not just extremists, but people on their fringe that people don't want to believe the government, their governments anymore. How many times can you be put on lockdown and still have this thing passing around? And, you know, how many times have we celebrated? We just recently celebrated two weeks to the uh, flatten the curve. Yeah. I mean, we've noticed this in a, in a number of different contexts is um, how easy misinformation, disinformation goes around now. And... You know, I, th- I think, I, I'd like to think that democratic governments, governments in democratic countries, okay? Um, and, you, and Benny, you know me. I'm, I, I think most conspiracy theories are, are flat out dumb, okay? I spent 
eight years of my life with top secret clearance doing high-level intelligence work in this country. Okay. Most, if not all, conspiracy theories in democratic countries are just flat-out ridiculous. It's really hard to hide something in a, dem- in a democracy. Okay? I understand how autocratic countries work. It's also really hard to hide things nowadays. But that's why when I see these things, I'm like, you know, I think there's so much information and it's so readily available that people just expect to know everything all the time. And when they don't, why, what are they trying to hide? You know, why, why are they hiding it? You know, oh, well, they're covering something up. Oh, the, the COVID, this, the vaccine, the lack of vaccine. Well, you know, it's like people forget that bureaucrats in government institutions okay, are human. Um, I, I say this without insulting any of my bureaucrat friends. I was going to say that that's debatable. Hold on. I say, no, what I'm about to say. First of all, they're human. Second of all, many of them are mediocre individuals. Okay, you're not getting necessarily the best and the brightest minds to do low-level and mid-level bureaucracy work in government. Thirdly, they're not nearly, in fact, not even close to as coordinated with each other as we, the public, would like them to be. And so if you think governments could do a conspiracy in a large country with, you know, in a democracy, it's just ridiculous to think. And I think that's, you know, people... Well, it, depends. it also kind of depends on the content of the conspiracy. Because there are conspiracies, for example, there are things that are not, I mean, they fit the definition of conspiracy, but in actuality it's just, let's hide sensitive information about... That's different. Hiding sensitive information is different than, than pushing out a narrative that, that has nothing to do with reality in order to twist the public into, you know, getting to do this or... And, and then, of course, when we're talking about the scale of misinformation right now on the body politic in the United States or in democratic countries, it's a conspiracy does not have to necessarily be true in order for it to have an it effect on people. It has to have small pieces of truth, right? From what you see, conspiracies have to have little pieces of truth in order to stick. I just have to touch on your fear. Okay. If I know what you're afraid of, I can then blame something else. I can then project your fear onto something else and say it's because of that. And once you start finding that in a society, which is just as, as easily as turning on the news... If you turn on conservative news, it's one set of fears. If you mm. turn on uh, progressive news, it's another, it's another set, set of fears. fears. And all they have to do is just keep manipulating it and twisting it and keep shooting it back. It's go on Twitter. Twitter is one of the angriest places I've ever been. Cesspool. Hate Twitter. I go just to look and just be like, man, this is nuts. Just nuts. But the news tends to come out a lot faster, but also four times greater misinformation is spread via Twitter than all the other uh, news sources. Well, the other news, from what I understand, all the other social medias. Yeah. Um, so the whole concept of there being uh, this cabal that's out to get them now is something everyone's afraid of. Everyone's looking over their shoulder. Do I wear a mask? Do I not wear a mask? Do I get vaccinated? Not get vaccinated? Is it going to be okay? Not be okay? When can I fly? When can I not fly? When can I do this? When can I not do that? I mean, here, if we go out to lunch afterwards, we're going to sit down in <laughs> a place where we can sit inside because we're vaccinated. Those that haven't been vaccinated have to sit outside. Tell me that doesn't feel like there's some kind of segregation between the two sides. That that isn't going to make some people start to feel like they're left out. And when someone feels left out, they start to get angry. When they get angry, they want someone... I'd say go get vaccinated. <laughs> they push back. Well, yeah. They don't want that third arm. You know, less of an, have to deal thankfully, with. less of an issue in Israel. But yeah, and I, I get what you're saying conceptually. Um, it, it, are you more worried about white supremacy, 
neo-Nazism in America today than when you were part of it? Yes. Yes. Do you think it, because it's more sophisticated, you mentioned earlier it's more sophisticated, or because it's got a bigger reach, are there more people involved? Or is it because it's mainstreaming? How many countries are we reaching right now? 109 countries, theoretically. So if we were talking about something crazy, about how bad it was here in Israel, how many countries are we hitting? How many people? She's saying the reach that they have now. I'm holding up a smartphone. I can get further with less than you could 30 years ago. Everyone has their own stews there. So you can find somebody saying the thing that you want to hear. If you just keep repeating it, eventually somebody will take that message and pass it on to somebody else. And once that's passed on, you start building a trend and a following. If you're saying it the right way, bullet points, quick little... uh, things that can be said very quickly, 30 seconds, maximum 30 seconds, so you make it into a news clip. If you can keep your point short and quick and something that's quotable, you're going to have people out there saying it because it's something that's catchy, and that's what we're all used to. That's what we're looking for. We're used to the little jingles and the ads that pop up on our phones. Um, that's why we do a long-format show, by the way. Yeah, these guys are definitely more in touch. I mean, if you look at uh, the shooting in uh, the Christchurch shooting in New Zealand, that was an Australian that did something hoping to affect American public policy. Mm. And it was all, it's, it's fascinating, to, fascinating to an extent in the morbid sense to read, sure, sure. read what they're thinking and how they're thinking and why they did what they did. Um, but they do it and they're seen as being, uh, you have someone that's a nobody, but they can pick up a gun and go kill five people, turn themselves into law enforcement, knowing they're going to go to jail for the rest of their lives, but for the rest of their lives they're going to get fan mail because they did something that other people won't do or are afraid to do. But this person had the quote-unquote courage to step forward and do it. They become martyrs, living martyrs. For the benefit of our race, correct. They're living martyrs. That's, That's a good way to phrase it. They're living martyrs. They're not jihadis that want to die. They want to live because they're part of the statement. Yeah. So I was never worried about a group coming after me thinking that they were going to die. They would come after me if they thought they could live, but that I would die. So as long as you can convince them that you have the reaction, if needed, that you can do whatever's needed to keep yourself alive, and it's going to harm them, that's something that will keep them at a distance. Coming into Holocaust Memorial Day, it's important that people understand that we have the state of Israel. Israel was built and founded with the remembrance of the Holocaust, with what happened to me as a continuation of what transpired, of the mindset behind the Holocaust. So for us, this is a country we have to be in, and I feel like this is we have to push. Not in the, like I don't use the term anti-Semitism; I say anti-Jewish racism, because anti-Semitism is something what that it's, it seems like it's a word that we can, it can be played with depending sure. on whose narrative uh, someone you're working with. Um, so for me, being here for a part of uh, uh, doing it for Holocaust Memorial Day, for me, is, uh, it's massive. It's touching. Every time I've ever been asked, for different organizations or schools to come in, they look at me like, who is this guy? He's obviously not old enough. He didn't survive the Holocaust. And it's like, well, what I survived was the continuation, the next generation of where this is, the, today's manifestation of where this is going, which is why we always have to keep up, keep speaking out and talking about it. If something happens to you, you can turn your back on it and choose to believe that it didn't happen. Not choose to believe, choose to ignore it. 
which is why I say I was a survivor and not a victim of anything. Going to court and pressing charges against all of them, I knew that I could make Aliyah come to Israel and leave it behind. But at the same time, that would be leaving a green light. If you attack a black, you go to prison. You attack a Latino, you go to prison. But you attack a Jew, they leave. What did I just do? Get the Jews. That you have to stand up and fight and say, no. Adko. Two here. This is it. Like the Me Too movement, you have to speak up. If something's happened to you, you have to speak up and speak out. And that's something that I feel very, very, very strongly about. And when I speak to groups, I try and encourage them or give them the tools they can find within themselves to learn how to beat their personal fears so that they can overcome the things that they're dealing with. That's a powerful message because a lot of times we're afraid. You know, you know, the Me Too movement, right? What if I lose my job? What if I don't get hired again, right? That's what a lot of women didn't come forth because what if they don't believe me? What if I have to now get dragged through, um, you know, by, by the press or people are going to call me, you know, this name or that name? And, and it takes courage. It takes courage to come forth and, and, and say, I, I'm going to, there's going to be negative consequences. There's going to be haters. There's going to be bad press. Um, Indeed. And, and so we'll use this to say any uh, community or any organization um, that wants to invite you to speak about this, about your story, about how to cope with these things today, about tools um, to, to combat this, uh, how can they find you? How can they reach you? There are two ways. One is John Daly's story on Facebook, which a friend of mine put together with work I was doing in Europe. He felt like it was important that I have that so that I could keep track of different things that were happening. And then Corona hit and I got on a plane and came back to Israel. The other is You Begin Change, which was put together by our friend Yael, Dr. Yael, that she said there needs to be something for you. But at the time I was going through a med change with uh, my neurologist. So she was really did everything. And I just sat back. But those are the two ways that people can find me. And we will put those on the show notes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. And, and people uh, can invite you to come speak um, or, or on Zoom or hopefully soon in person. Yeah. It's, it's been powerful, and we really thank you for, for coming here and opening up and, and sharing the story. And uh, My first podcast. Thank you. Yeah. And um, we wish you a lot of health, a lot of success, and we wish everyone a meaningful Holocaust Memorial Day. We wish everyone a meaningful Israeli Fallen Soldiers Memorial Day and a happy Independence Day next week. Absolutely. Well said. And uh, to our many Muslim listeners, happy Ramadan. Ramadan Mubarak to all of you. That's coming up this week. And we will be with you next week on Juanced. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com. And feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.